Welcome to Time Traveling Team, the weekly podcast where we review every story of Doctor Who right from the very beginning. I'm Paddy. And I'm Trisha. This week we join the Doctor, Romana and K9 as they find themselves caught up in an intergalactic situation straight out of myth in the horns of Nimon. As usual, we'll be discussing the Doctor, companions and villains and your thoughts on the story as a whole. I also realised I said Nimon, not Naimon. I've always said Nimon. Deal with it. Yep. Yeah, I, I don't think, I think much like Doctor Who in general, people always seem to have different pronunciations of stuff. So, when would also love to hear your thoughts on how to pronounce Nimon or Naiman <laughs> and the story in general. So, you can join us in the discussion. Uh, you can check us out at Time Team, that's T I V T E A M P, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or you can email us at Time Traveling Team at TeamProductions.com. But first and foremost, as always, I shall give the story recap. Part 1. On board a large star cruiser, the pilot and co-pilot bicker back and forth over the state of their antiquated equipment. An alarm starts to go off and the pilot berates the co-pilot for ignoring protocol and not rerouting the subroutines through the backup system. The co-pilot says that the process takes hours, but the pilot says that they are still 12 hours away from their homeworld of Skonos. He then reassures the co-pilot that their patron, Naiman, will give them the equipment that they need so long as they follow his orders. The co-pilot then goes back to check on their cargo, which is a group of young men and women from the planet Anat, and he mocks them for their cowardice. He goes back to the bridge and convinces the pilot that they can take a shortcut to get back to Skonos, but it will need the primary flight system. Unfortunately, the system overloads and the pilot berates him, saying that the autopilot is no longer functioning and that they are drifting off course. They struggle to get it back on course, but the ship is racked with explosions, which sends it drifting off into space. Meanwhile, on the TARDIS, the Doctor is tinkering with the power console in an attempt to immobilise the ship whilst in the time vortex. However, K9 informs him that they are still moving at picky up speed. Romana enters the console room just as the ship lurches and they all struggle to stay upright. Romana says they must be near a gravitational field of some type, but the Doctor says that he wouldn't have risked doing his adjustments if he knew they were near one. He uses the external view screen to see what's outside and all they can see is blackness. Romana says that they could be entering a black hole and points out that they can't dematerialize because of the Doctor's adjustments. She tells him to put everything back together again, but he ends up causing several bangs that damage the console. Suddenly, Romana points out the damaged Skonan ship and says that it is the source of the gravitational field. On board the Skonan ship, the co-pilot regains consciousness and sends a distress signal back to Skonas. In the Imperial Palace on Skonas, Commander Sorek watches Grand Leader Saldid emerge from the wall after having come from an audience with Naimon. He reiterates the promises that Naimon has given them in order to help bring about the glory of their empire again. Back in space, the TARDIS crashes into the Skonan ship and becomes wedged in its framework. The Doctor says the ship looks to be centuries old and that he wants to take a look at it. Romana asks how they will get into it and the Doctor says that he will make a tunnel using the TARDIS's door's force field. They get inside and see that there's hardly any light. They find a supply of ore encased in a bubble and Romana warns that it could be radioactive. After getting K9 to confirm it, the Doctor tells him to go back to the TARDIS and get started on the repairs whilst he and Romana continue to explore the ship. They make their way into the cargo bay where they discover the group of youths and the Doctor tries to put them at their ease with a bag of jelly babies. They rarely take them, and the Doctor introduces himself and Romana. One of the young men introduces himself as Set, the Prince of Anat. Romana asks where they are going, and Set and one of the girls, Tekka, say that they are bearers of Anat's tribute to Naiman. Suddenly the ship rumbles as another object collides with it, and the Doctor expresses his belief that some unknown force is creating an artificial black hole. Romana agrees with his theory, pointing out that the gravity of the ship has been slowly but continually increasing. Set asks what's going on, and Romana begins to explain the nature of the singularity to him. 
Doctor interrupts, saying they need to speak to whoever is in charge. Just then, the co-pilot emerges, brandishing a blaster, and demands to know who they are. Doctor instead offers to help them get out of the gravitational field, and the co-pilot leads him and Romana to the bridge. Once there, they see the pilot is dead. The co-pilot says that the most important thing now is to keep the cargo safe, and Romana says that it is the ore he retorts that he means the sacrifices. At that moment on Skonas, Sarek reports that the missing ship to Saldid, who angrily tells him to find it so that they can deliver the sacrifices. He then goes to inform Naiman. He returns through the wall that he earlier came from and goes to Naiman's lair, which is a laboratory filled with advanced tech. Saldid then recoils in fear when Naiman, a minotaur-like creature, approaches. Back on the ship, the Doctor comments on the antiquated nature and all the ad hoc repairs that have been done to it throughout the years with new equipment of a different technological level. The co-pilot repeatedly asks if he can fix it, and the Doctor says that he can, but he doesn't know if they can generate enough power to break free of the gravity well. Romana suggests adjusting the engines so to use the ore as a fuel source, and the Doctor says that that will work and tells her to start making the adjustments. He tells her that he will go back to the TARDIS to fetch some equipment, and hands her his sonic screwdriver. However, she says that she's already made one of her own, handing it to the Doctor for examination. The Doctor says it's a bit more basic, but then goes to leave with it before Romana asks him to hand it back. Doctor arrives back to the TARDIS to find K9 covered in a ticker tape readout of the damage report to the ship. As he goes through the report, the Doctor asks K9 what he knows about the Scotland Empire. He then goes back onto the ship where he discovers that the gravity distortion has gotten worse, slowing down their movements and speech. He tells the co-pilot to go to the bridge and get ready to cycle the power. He then tells Roman to stay on board and maintain the piece of equipment that he took from the TARDIS, which is called a gravitetic anomalizer. He says that he will go back and pilot the TARDIS into the cargo hold so that they can repair it. However, after he gets back, the Skolan ship begins to move away after cycling its power, but the TARDIS remains behind in the gravity well, drawing more space debris to it. On the Skolan ship, Set and Tech explain their presence to Romana, saying that it is part of an agreement to prevent Skolan from destroying Anat. Suddenly all the doors shut and Romana realises that the co-pilot has betrayed them and left the Doctor behind. She goes to confront the co-pilot and angrily demands that he return to save the Doctor and K-9, but he ignores her, saying that he must fulfil his task. Meanwhile, back on the TARDIS, K-9 alerts the Doctor to the approach of a planetoid that has been dragged into the gravity well as on a collision course with them. Part 2 The Doctor grabs onto K-9 and asks how long until impact, and K-9 responds that they have less than 90 seconds. The Doctor says that they are about to feel what it's like to be a cricket ball and bids a fond farewell to the TARDIS and K-9. He suddenly gets an idea and tells K-9 to hold on. He then sets the TARDIS on an inverted spiral axis in order to counter the planetoid's momentum. The planetoid hits the TARDIS and sends it careening out into space away from the gravity well. When it eventually comes to a halt, the Doctor and K-9 ensure that the other is okay before going back to the repairs. The Doctor commends his own talent, but laments the waste of a potentially fantastic cricket career. On Skonas, Naimon berates Saldid for a potential loss of the ship and its captives and says that he will not fulfil his part of the bargain until they are delivered. Saldid vows to find the ship and suggests that it may have been attacked by forces from Anat. He asks Naimon to give them some ships ahead of the agreement so they can act in their revenge, but Naimon refuses. Saldid then returns to his chamber and demands that Sorek launch another attack against Anat to secure more hostages, but leaves before Sorek can raise any objections. Meanwhile, on the Skullin ship, Romana tries to take control of it back and save the Doctor, but the co-pilot forces her back into the cargo hold at gunpoint. Once she is there with the other prisoners, she tries to rally them to storm the bridge and seize control of it. However, Set and Tekka say that they have no choice but to carry on to Skonas in order to save the rest of Anat. Tekka reveals Naimon's part in the dispute, and Set signals her to be quiet, but Romana asks what's going on. 
Tekka reveals that Seth has volunteered as a sacrifice in order to kill Naimon. Romana is aware of the success of the plan and chooses to carry out her own plan of taking control of the ship. However, she realizes that she left her sonic screwdriver on the bridge and can't get out of the cargo hold. With no other choice, Romana asks more about Naimon. They tell her of the history of Skonos and how it was ravaged by a civil war that left Saldid as the only remaining scientist who took over the remnants of the Skonan army. They tell her that Naimon then appeared and Saldid built a vast maze-like complex for Naimon. Romana talks to Set privately about his task and he reveals that he isn't actually a prince. He reveals that he ran away from home and was found by the king, who believed his story of being a descendant from the royal family. He also expresses his reluctance at being treated like a hero, but their conversation is interrupted by the co-pilot, who comes to take Romana to help prepare for their arrival on Skonos. In Saldid's personal chambers on Skonos, Sorokin informs him of the arrival of the ship, and Saldid orders the welcoming ceremony to be prepared. A few hours later, the ship arrives and Romana and the other prisoners are brought to the throne room. Saldid notices that they aren't carrying the full supply of ore from the ship and asks what happened. Romana suddenly steps forward and demands to know where the doctor is. Saldid asks who she is and where she comes from, but when Romana herself speaks, he threatens to kill her if she speaks again. The co-pilot then steps forward and says that she is a space pirate and that she and her crew are responsible for the death of the pilot. He says that he captured her at great personal risk before driving off the others and repairing the ship himself. Romana refutes this and gives the actual version of events, but Saldid again warns her to keep quiet. He then questions the co-pilot on his repairs of the ship, and then tells him that he is lying as he would not have the skill needed to make the necessary adjustments to the fuel system to accept the ore. Saldid says that he must pay the price for putting the shipment at risk, and forces him into the maze complex. Saldid then orders Romana and the prisoners to be sent into the maze as part of the ceremony, before going to a meeting of his council and Sarek. He tells them that the Skonan Empire will soon rise again now that they have completed their pact with Naimon. In the maze, the co-pilot carefully makes his way through the tunnel, pulling out his weapon when he hears growls. He then hears footsteps approaching and he hides as he watches Romana and the others walk past. He then tries to follow after them but finds his way blocked off, and when he tries to double back he finds that that way is too blocked and he instead goes down a newly opened tunnel. The same thing happens to Romana and the others, who find themselves forced to go through a newly opened tunnel as well. They soon enter a chamber that contains a mummified body on a table that is wearing a similar outfit to the other in Eaton's. Tekka touches it and it crumples the dust, and then she says that that is their fate and awaits them unless Set kills Naiman. Meanwhile, after much trial and error, the Doctor manages to repair the flight controls of the TARDIS, and he says that they can go to Skonos to retrieve the Gravatic Anomalizer and Romana, after being reminded by K-9. They eventually arrive and they do a scan of the planet as they approach. They find the capital city and the Doctor spots Naimon's complex, which is designed after his horned head. K-9 says that it has a defence shield around it that they can't get past, so the Doctor says they can land in an adjacent building. When he exits the TARDIS, the Doctor finds himself surrounded by Sorak's men who hold him at gunpoint. He has to be taken to their leader. He is then taken to Saldid's personal chamber, where he immediately shows interest in some devices that Saldid says are his own inventions. The Doctor tells him that he has seen similar devices, but then switches topics, asking if Saldid knows about the black hole being created near the planet. The Doctor asks about Romana, but Saldid claims no knowledge of her. However, Sarek enters with the gravitetic anomalizer after searching the ship under Saldid's orders. Saldid tries to blast him, but he uses his gravetic anomalizer to block the shot before running out of the office, sealing the door behind him. Saldid, Sarek, and his men give chase, cornering the Doctor at the entrance to the maze, but the Doctor goes into it willingly. Inside the maze, the Doctor tries to mark his progress, but he soon discovers that his markings have been removed and the maze layout has changed behind him. With no other choice, he continues on. 
Meanwhile, Roman and the others find more sacrifices in stasis tubes, and Romana suggests that they're being kept until Naimon needs to feed. She then says that they should continue to try and find a way out of the co- complex, but they are cornered by the co-pilot, who leads them into an antechamber. He calls out to Naimon, saying that he has brought him the tribute. Naimon emerges and says that he has no need for anyone to bring him anything. The co-pilot then says that Saldid sent him, but Naimon calls him a liar. The co-pilot then fires at him, but the blast is ineffective, and he then begins to beg for mercy. Naimon kills him with an energy blast from his horns before advancing on Romana and the others. Part 3. The Doctor appears and lures Naimon into a storage area like a matador. Naimon fires at the Doctor with his horns, but hits one of the inanimate st- sacrifices instead. Romana dashes forward to pick up the co-pilot's gun and fires into the storage area, creating a distraction for the Doctor to escape. She then shoots some of the equipment in the antechamber before telling the others to run, but only Set and Tekka go with her, as the remaining sacrifices are too scared to move. Naimon says that their efforts are in vain, as he can still carry out his plan. The Doctor manages to find Romana, Set and Tekka in the tunnels, and he calls out that Naimon is cheating by constantly changing the maze. Tekka says that Naimon will catch them, but the Doctor says that he will be too busy repairing the damage that Romana did to his equipment, revealing it to be a form of furnace. The Doctor then notices that the other and Ethan's aren't there, and Romana says that they didn't follow. This alarms the Doctor, who says that they need to get to the core of the complex, but they find their way hampered by the ever-changing tunnels. At that moment, Naimon instructs the sacrifices to load the ore into the repaired furnace before stunning them with a blast from his horns. After a while, the Doctor and the others find a control room. The Doctor and Romana look around at the equipment and agree that it seems to be a transmitting station of some kind, with the signal emanating from the horns at the top of the complex. The Doctor tells Set and Tekka to watch out for Naimon and to come get him if they see him approaching. Before they go, Tekka assures the Doctor that Set will deal with him. The Doctor then says that the entire complex reminds him of a giant uh, positronic circuit, which accounts for the shifting tunnels in the maze. The Doctor says that they will need a computer to figure out what the station is actually transmitting, and Romana suggests summoning K9. The Doctor agrees and calls the robot dog with his electronic whistle. Back at the TARDIS, K9 is using the external view screen to observe Saldid and Sarek's various attempts to break in. When he emerges, Sarek orders his men to stop K9, but their weaponry is ineffective. The robot dog retaliates and stuns one of the guards, but he is then immobilized by a blast from Saldid's staff. Saldid orders Sarek to search the TARDIS, but Sarek says that the door has sealed itself again. Saldid then says that to have a guard placed on it before ordering that K9 to be brought to his private chambers. Back in the transmitting station, the Doctor realises that the transmitter is actually aimed at the black hole and suggests that it could be used to create a hyperspace tunnel to another point in the universe. He then informs Romana of his conversation with Saldid about the black hole and reveals that the scientist knows nothing about it. Elsewhere, Sarek meets with Saldid and expresses his confusion as to why Naiman is offering his help to rebuild their empire. Saldid says that Naimon is an egotistical being who enjoys and craves the adoration that God-worship grants, and so Saldid has had Skonos give that to him. In return, he explains that Naimon will pay back this adoration and blessings of technology and weaponry, which will lead to further worship. However, Saldid assures Sarek that he is the one that is in charge of the relationship, not Naimon. At that moment, Naimon is stalking the tunnels of the maze, and Seth sends Tekka back to warn the Doctor, assuring her that he will fight Naimon when the time is right. Tekka goes back to the transmitting station and informs him of Naimon's approach, but before they can leave, Seth appears and says that Naimon is right behind him and that they should hide. They all take cover as Naimon enters and begins to work at the various pieces of equipment. Doctor tries to get a closer look at what he is doing and Romana tells him to be careful. However, he can't determine what Naimon is doing but confides to Romana that it may already be too late to stop him. 
At that moment, the horns at the top of the complex begin to glow. Saldid tells Sarg the time of the fulfilment of their pact has come, and he goes into the maze to confront Naiman. In the transmitting station, the Doctor and the others watch as an egg-shaped craft appears, and Naiman goes to open it. Two more minotaur-like creatures emerge, and Naiman welcomes them to their new homeworld, revealing to the others that Naiman is the name of their species. One of the newly arrived Naimans congratulates his Scotland counterpart, saying that their own homeworld is near death, and he completed his plans just in time. They then leave to f- carry out the full migration of the rest of their species. The Doctor and Roman explain to the confused set in Tekka that the Naiman have created black holes to instantaneously travel from their own homeworld to Skonos. The Doctor says that more planets may have possibly been fooled by the Naiman and that more hyperspace tunnels could be being created. He tells Seth and Tekka to go back on guard before giving his sonic screwdriver to Romana so that she can examine the Naiman craft. Doctor tinkers with the transmitter and tells Romana that he thinks he can possibly reverse the hyperspace tunnel back to its origin point of the Naiman's homeworld and send them back with it. Seth and Tekka suddenly come back and say that they can hear someone approaching, but the Doctor ignores them as he pulls the lever on the machine. He calls out his success to Romana but discovers that she is missing and he realises that she must have still been in the ship when he reversed the tunnel. He says he would have to undo the reversal, but suddenly Saldid arrives and tells him to step away from the machine. The Doctor tries to explain what he is doing, but Saldid fires a blast from his staff at him, hitting the controls of the hyperspace tunnel. The Doctor forlornly says the Romana's name before being confronted by Saldid, who points his staff right in his face. Part 4 Set stuns Saldid with his blaster, allowing the Doctor to take away his staff. The Doctor tanks him before going to see what damage was done to the controls. Set offers the help, but the Doctor says that he needs K9. The Doctor then takes out the Gravatic Anomalizer and says that he might be able to use it as a replacement of some of the parts damaged by Saldid. Tekka then notices that Saldid has gone, and they hear him laughing in the distance. The Doctor tells her and Set to pursue him to stop him from warning the Naimon. At that moment, Romana emerges from the craft on the Naimon homeworld of Krinoth. Two Naimon appear and chase her into the tunnels, which are reminiscent of the ones on Skonos. She is cornered by in a storage unit similar to the one on Skonos, but the two Naimon are suddenly felled by energy blasts. A haggard-looking man in dirty robes emerges from the shadows, carrying a staff just like Saldid's. He introduces himself as Sizam, and Romana thanks him for saving her life. He tells her that the Naimon will be unconscious for a few hours, and then asks who she is. She introduces herself, and then asks where she is. He tells her that they are on Krinosh, and reveals that this is his home planet, and not the Naimon's. He says that a single Naimon came to his planet, offering peace and technology, and Sezam agreed to work for him, mirroring the role taken by Saldid. Romana says that he is not the only one that fell for the trick, and Sezam says that he learned that many plants fell to the Naimon, who stripped them bare of all their resources before moving on. Romana says that she needs to get back to Skonos to prevent the same thing happening there. Back on Skonos, Tekka and Set become separated in the maze, and Set calls out to her as he wanders the tunnels. Tekka then wanders into the storage area where the other sacrifices are being held in stasis, and she's confronted by Saldid, who disarms her and presents her to the newly arrived Naimon. However, he is horrified when more of them start to appear. In the transmitting station, the Doctor successfully manages to bring the Naimon craft back, but when he opens it, he discovers two Naimon inside. He rushes back to the controls and manages to send the ship back before they get out of it. At that moment, Sarek enters Saldid's office and reactivates K9, who asks where he is. Sarek is taken back by his ability to speak and asks for a demonstration of his power. K9 gives him a short stinging blast from his nose gun and then asks to be put on the floor. K9 then leaves the office and locks Sarek in from the outside. Back on Krinot, 
the nine men gathered to discuss what to do now that the way to Scanus is blocked. They reluctantly agreed to enact the final contingency. Romana and Sazam observe this conversation from the shadows, and Romana asks what the final contingency is. Shazam says that in the event that the Naiman can't be pulled through the tunnel from the far side, they convert the existing matter of the planet that they're on into an energy to force them through the tunnel from this side. Shazam says that he, she needs to go back to Skonos, and Romana asks how they will get past the Naiman. He says that he can use his staff to deal with them, and explains to Romana how he converted it after the Naiman gave it to him. He shows her a sample of the crystal he uses to power it, and gives her some to take with her. They then head back to the ship, and Sazam provides a distraction for Romana to get to it. However, he is wounded and tells a reluctant Romana to leave without him whilst he holds off the Naiman. She locks herself into the ship and urges the Doctor to bring her back to Skonos. However, back on Skonos, the Doctor is cornered by the Naiman, who demands that he step away from the controls, and they bring back the ship. Romana then emerges and starts to give out to the Doctor, but stops when she sees the Naiman. Just then, Set returns, and Romana throws him the crystal Sazam gave her, and tells him to use it on Saldid's staff. She then tells him to use it on the Naiman, and he stuns the two of them. Suddenly, another Snaiman appears and blasts the staff from Set's hand, but before he can come any closer, it is shot in the back by K9. Doctor thanks him for his assistance, and then immediately asks him to analyse the repairs he made to the machine, saying he intends to divert the course of the hyperspace tunnel into dead space. Set then asks about Tekka, and the Doctor says that if she's been captured, she will most likely be in the storage area. He tells Romana and Set to go ahead of him, and he will follow shortly with K9. Romana and Set arrive at the storage area and see Tekka in one of the stasis tubes. Romana goes to release her, but she is stopped by Saldid, who is showing increasing signs of mania due to the realisation that the Naiman tricked him. Romana reveals the fate that awaits Skonos if they don't try and stop the Naiman. Saldid instead blames Romana and the others for the ruination of his dreams, and he goes to the control panel on the wall. Romana tells Set to stop him, but he shoots too late, and Saldid sends the reactor of the complex into critical overload. The Doctor then arrives and tells Set to help K9 in awakening the other prisoners. Romana says that Saldid jammed the controls and they can't have both the overload. The Doctor then says that they need to leave, and that the awakened prisoners are to follow after him, with Tekka heralding Set as their saviour. Doctor tells K9 to find the exit, and he leads them on as best he can, stopping every so often to recalculate the exit route due to the shifting tunnels. He eventually leads them out where they find Sorek and the Council assembled, demanding to know what is going on. Tekka says that Set defeated the Naiman, but the Doctor and Romana tell everyone to get away as the complex explodes. Later, in the TARDIS, an exasperated Romana watches the Doctor tinkers with the control console again, asking if he has learned nothing from his experience. He gleefully ignores her, and she then asks what Skonos will be like with Sarek in charge. He says that it will probably be the same, but the Skonans will be too busy rebuilding again so that they won't have time to bother anyone else. They then watch on the external view screen as Krenot explodes in the distance, taking the Naiman with it. She then asks about Set and the others, and he says that he has had Sarek give them a ship to go back to Anat. He says he told him to paint it white, mentioning a similar adventure where he forgot to tell the crew to do so, and it led to some trouble. He then says that they have more places to go and comments that the old girl has a few millennia left in her. Thinking that he is talking about her, Romana thanks him for his compliment, but then pulls the face when he says that he was talking about the TARDIS. End of the story. So, as you might have guessed, there's a bit of a Greek myth uh, theme to this story. 
And one thing that Trish loves talking about is Greek myth. So we're <laughs> going to go over to the trivia spot and see what you can tell us about this particular story. Cool. So, first of all, yes. Um, I did message Paddy yesterday when I was watching this being like, I'm getting a weird sense of deja vu. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, we'll get into the Greek stuff in a second. But first, air date. 22nd of December 1979 to 12th of January 1980. We are now officially in the 80s. Welcome Mm -hmm. to the 80s, Doctor Who. Writer is Anthony Reid. You may remember Anthony Reid used to be the script editor. Mm -hmm. Um, This is the only story he wrote under his own name, but he did collaborate with Graham Williams under the pseudonym of David Agnew to do The Invasion of Time. So... Um, Anthony passed away back in 2015. The director is Kenny McBain. This is the only Doctor Who directing credit for Kenny, and he passed away back in 1989. So the story's working title was just Horns of... Okay, I'll say it properly. Horns of Nyman. Um, So just minus the the, basically. Mm-hmm. And as Paddy mentioned, there's a bit of a Greek theme. The myth of Theseus and the Minotaur. So several names are anagrams or near anagrams or like clearly influenced by names from the myth. So mm-hmm. Athens becomes Anath. Knossos, which is the city in Crete where the Minotaur was, um, becomes Skonos. Theseus becomes Seth. Corinth, which is where Seth was where Theseus was originally from, I believe. Might be wrong. Uh, becomes Kronoth. The power complex itself is obviously analogous to the labyrinth. Mm. Naimon is obviously a play on the Minotaur. And now here we have something where I would challenge our very helpful mm. TARDIS wiki. Because they say that the Naimons as a whole are meant to be Minos. Mm. I don't think so. Mm. Like, Minos is the guy who holds it against Athens and who throws people to the Minotaur. I wouldn't say the Naimons are analogous to Minos, but I'm sure we'll discuss that when we talk about characters later on. Because I will not lie, I spent a large portion of the story going, and who are you? And who are you? (laughs) And who Mm. are you? (laughs) Yeah. There's an awful lot of, like, and you're based upon this person, yes? Are you based upon this person? No. Yeah. Um, The other thing, and the other sort of more direct reference to the Theseus myth for anyone who didn't pick up on it with all of the stuff that gave, given is the doctor's line I'm glad I reminded them to paint their ship white last time I did this happened completely forgot caused quite a hoo-ha now this ties back A to Greek mythology where Theseus goes to or Theseus leaves Athens goes to Knossos kills the Minotaur escapes stuff happens but the whole idea was that his father, Aegeus, was standing on the cliffs and would wait for their ship to sail back. Mm. If the ship had black sails, then it meant that Theseus was unsuccessful. And so the prince of Athens is dead. If the ship had white sails, it means that Theseus was successful and he was alive. Mm. I have issues with Theseus in general, which may be a conversation for another day. Mm-hmm. Dumbass fucking forgot to change the sails. Aegeus saw black sails and jumped off the cliff in despair. Yeah, 
Yeah, because like depending on the tellings, like some of it is like he's drunk from partying too much in celebration and forgets to do it. Others is just like he simply fucking forgets to yeah. do it. I have issues with Theseus, and I'm sure we'll come up at several points throughout this. Um, sure. because I can't remember is is Theseus or is it is it the Theseus myth or the Jason myth is the one involving chopping up chopping up the brother to that's delay. Jason. That's Jason. Go that's forward. Jason and Medea. Yeah, cool. I have issues with Theseus and Ariadne. Yeah. Uh, Also, possibly another connection to ancient Greece, uh, Skonos in general might be analogous to the Spartan uh, kingdom. You know, the the, the military power that has a rivalry with Athens. Yeah, like like it's like the name is clearly a play on Knossos. Knossos, yeah. Um, But I think the whole idea of the people is probably a bit of a Spartan thing as well. Yeah. Um, the two Nymans who arrive on Skonos in the egg. It's an mm. egg. I don't know what to describe it. Um, did not originally have any lines. But that changed oh. during recording. Because this was a late decision, Bob Appleby and Trevor St. John Hacker, he's a very long name, um, they were uncredited both on screen and in Radio Times for part three. And the lead Nyman actor, Robin Sheringham, was credited on screen for part three, but not in Radio Times. Apparently, Radio Times said that the reason for this was due to a lack of space in the issue. Mm. When Graham Williams asked, why are people missing? (laughs) What the hell? (laughs) Both the pilot and co-pilot are unnamed on screen, but they were given names of Sekoth and Sardor, respectively, in Terence Stix's novelization of the story. This is just names he made up. It it yeah. doesn't come from anything um, in the story. You may have noticed that the Nymons are quite tall. Um, they mm-hmm. wore 10 inch platform heels to give them their height. Yeah. And all I can say is the lead Nymon, that poor fucker, mm. because there's moments where he has to check the machines and they mm. set certain dials to be quite low. So he obviously can't bend over properly. So he has to do this sort of like wide leg spread crouch thing. <laughs> yeah. In order to, to check the Yeah, because like, like the, 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 the bull heads are like big kind of like styrofoam fucking bull heads that they're wearing. Like. Mm. So uh, Saul Deed's death scene, which I'm sure we'll talk about more later on, uh, while yelling, you're all doomed, all doomed. Um, and the fact that he's like laughing hysterically. The line was scripted. The laughter, not so much. That was the actor corpsing while trying to deliver the line. But also he thought it was a rehearsal. He didn't think that that was the version they were going to go with. When he does it that way, it reminds you of, like, uh, in The Simpsons, like, when Homer is, like, trying to destroy his trampoline. And he's like, you're like, someday you'll rust. Rust, I tell you. And he just goes into maniacal laughter. Um... Malcolm Terrace, who plays the previously mentioned co-pilot, um, he ad-libbed the line "weakling scum," which I don't know why. I just sort of remember says like, "Is he trying to channel like Star Wars or something?" Yeah, you know. um, but I think it's a bit too. Or I don't know. Rebel scum had become a thing at that point. Mm. Um, the scene where the Doctor gives K nine mouth to mouth after K 9s head fucking. Spins upside down. Yeah. Uh, that was an ad lib by Tom. I thought it'd be funny to give K9 much mouth. Um, 
I'm going to go through a few bits here now that technically I should probably cover next week. But we mentioned before that next week Paddy and I are discussing Shadow. Mm-hmm. But Shadow was never actually produced and aired at the time. The production was abandoned. So Horns of Dimon, from a airing perspective, was actually the season finale for this season of the show. Now, Paddy and I will treat next week as if it's part of the season, but with that in mind, for a viewer at the time in January 1980, this story marked the end of several eras of the show for people watching at the time. This is Graham Williams' last story. It's the final script edited by Douglas Adams. It's the final story in which David Briley voices K9. Thank God. Um... <laughs> It featured the final use of the original 1963 arrangement of the Doctor Who theme. It's apparently the last use of the diamond-shaped logo and tunnel. Mm. Oh, Oh, yeah. It's the last story scored by Dudley Simpson. And the last thing up there, I'm actually going to hold off because I think it'll be a bigger topic of discussion when that happens. Yeah. Um, and in relation to the new intro as well, uh, I I have I have to laugh. Like I'll I'll save it for when we actually discuss the new intro, which will be in two weeks' time. Yeah. Um, but yes, I think so. If you were watching the show live, that's everything that this story would have represented for you. Mm-hmm. Graham Williams disliked the story; he didn't think it was strong enough. Um. And it was made because there were no other scripts available. They had to make something. The reason why he put it in this slot was that he thought that it would be forgotten once Shadow started transmitting. Mm-hmm. Like, no one will remember the second last story. They will remember the last story of the season. Which, sadly for him and his opinion of the story, backfired because Shadow was abandoned and never aired. So mm. this became the season finale. And his view of it was it was a weak, weak script and a weak program, hence why we buried it at number five. To we will see though, when we get to our overall if we agree with his assessment. But yeah, but to be fair though, I like the final shot. I think would kind of work for a season finale. Yeah, you know, like you know, we've got you know we've got more places to go to, and you've got some millennia left in here yet. That does seem like an end of a season type. Yeah, line. I'd yeah. agree. I'd agree. So, on to our cast. So, as Seth, we have Simon Gibbs Kent, is the only Doctor Who acting credit for Simon. His non Who credits include To Serve Them All My Days, The Emigrants, The Tomorrow People, and Great Expectations. Simon passed away in 1987. Heka, so by Janet Ellis, is the only Doctor Who acting credit for Janet. In terms of her impact on Doctor Who, her bigger impact probably came from the fact that she was a presenter on Blue Peter between 1983 and 1987. And so she conducted the introductory interviews for Colin Baker and Sylvester McCoy when they were being introduced as the Doctor. And Blue Peter actually had the exclusive rights to announce Sylvester's casting in the role. So she actually was the exclusive on that, which is quite cool. Um, yeah. You know, for someone who was in the show. Like, bearing in mind that we also had... Um, uh, Peter. Peter Paris, Peter Paris. Who, who is also in Blue Peter, so that's good. Um, her other... Did he, did, 
Sorry, to the extent that people forgot he was in Doctor Who. Yeah. Uh, Janet's other credits include Hotel Babylon, Absalon, Al Nombre, and Number Time, where she played Al Nombre and then got the voice actor of Al Nombre. Um, and her daughter is Sophie Ellis Baxter. That's fucking cool. Yep. Because I like Sophie Ellis Baxter's music. Me too. Uh, Unnamed co-pilot <laughs> mm-hmm. is played by Malcolm Terrace, as I mentioned. This is the second of two appearances from Malcolm. We previously saw him as Ethnon in The Dominators. His non-hoop credits include The Great Train Robbery, The Bounty, Chaplin, Coronation Street, and Emmerdale Farm. Malcolm passed away back in 2020. Sezom? Shazom. Sezom? You pronounced it like three different ways. I don't know which one. I can't even yeah, remember which one it is now. Yeah, my mouth was like going, no, I ain't cooperating with this one. <laughs> <laughs> he is played by John Bailey. This is the third mm. and final appearance by John. We previously discussed him as he played the commander in the Censorites, and he was also Edward Waterfield in The Evil of the Daleks. I knew he looked familiar. Yep. Sorak is played by Michael Osborne. This is the only credited Doctor Who appearance for Michael. However, he does have another mythology connection with Doctor Who. Because he had an uncredited Citizen of Troy appearance in The Mythmakers. And he was also an uncredited slave guardian in The Ark. His non-who credits include The Man with the Golden Gun, Clayhanger, Grange Hill and Dixon of Doc Green. Saldid is played by Graham Crowden. Only Doctor Who acting credit for Graham. His non-who credits include A Very Peculiar Practice, Waiting for God, Calendar Girls and Foiled's War. Graham passed away back in 2010. I was convinced the very first time I watched this that that was Jonathan Price. So much so that when I watched it again this time, I forgot that it wasn't Jonathan Price and thought it was Jonathan Price again. <laughs> <laughs> there's, a, there's an eerie resemblance between the two of them. Lastly, the voice of Naiman um, is Clifford Norgate. This is the first of two voice credits on Doctor Who for Clifford. We will hear his voice again in The Leisure Hive. His other credits are, because he only has six, Nightmare, Jack and Nori, Center Play, Dial M for Murder, and Adventure Weekly. Thus endeth the trivia. So, you done story summary. I done yes, trivia. I mm-hmm. Now it is time to talk characters so we have the doctor duh Mm -hmm. we have our companions i just put roman and canine as the companions i don't think the others deliver enough to actually be considered as a story-based companion yeah uh, i'm the same i just have the (laughs) for some reason nearly said the gruesome twosome they're not gruesome (laughs) at all the ever-present twosome then we have the prominent characters now two of these you may disagree with me on okay so i have seth Mm-hmm. Tekka slash Tika, whatever the fuck her name is. Sezam slash Sezam slash Shazam, whatever the fuck his name is. Mm-hmm. And then I also put Sorak and the co pilot because Sorak in particular, I would just say, if anything, is a prominent character. The co pilot is a villain, but like, he's nothing, like, he's just a. Oh, whatever. Do you know what I mean? I would say he's a asshole of a prominent character. But he's not a plot driving like like he is not the one orchestrating the whole thing. Do you know? I would okay. I would say yeah. Sorry, prominent character. 
but I, w- I would put the, the co-pilot firmly in the villain camp because of what he represents and what he does throughout the story. I suppose when you consider more what he does to the... um, I've forgotten what they're... To the uh, Anethans. Yeah. Yeah. If by the way, through this, if I refer to them as the Athenians, just just accept it. Yeah, we're we're we're, we're probably we're probably going to like do a lot of like interchanging <laughs> of the Greek yeah. name and, and the and the real name. Yeah. Um. <laughs> but actually, no. Yeah. Actually, the more I think about it, the way he was with them. Yeah. No. Okay. We'll yeah. move him down. Like and, like the 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 guy is like he is a straight up fucking Gestapo esque yeah. Nazi. Like yeah. And we can talk about it more when we get to it. Yeah. And then our other villains are Saldid and. Naimon number one slash the Naimons. The Naimon the Naimon race, yeah. yeah. So back up to the top. Mm-hmm. Paddington. Thoughts on the doctor. Please. A cr- uh, <laughs> you're welcome. Yeah. Uh a cricketing fancy, eh, Doctor? <laughs> Foreshadowing something to come, perhaps. <laughs> but then again, you're having a bit of a throwback to your previous incarnation with the constant fucking tinkering. Like yes. the constant tinkering. Um, I don't know about you, but this felt very Dr. Light. Like most of the story, he seems to be either tinkering with something or wandering around the tunnels of the fucking maze. It sort of reminds me, and I didn't see it in the trivia, but it reminds me of particularly back in Bill Hartnell's era. Yeah. When we'd have one story where one of the people was on vacation. Compa- Mm-hmm. And so they might appear in the beginning and they'll appear at the end, but not in the middle. Or pre-filmed inserts or something. Yeah. And at some point it kind of reminded me of that because it's Romana who does a lot of the interaction with our story-based characters. Mm. Um, so yeah, it did feel a little light on the dock. Now, had some great moments, not going to lie. Yeah, but yeah. It did feel like he was sort of off to the side on his own. <laughs> not involved in the story at all. <laughs> hmm. Like barring his his convert, like his like he's probably the only one on one conversation he has with Saldine in Saldine's office. Hmm. There's no real doctor versus villain moment. No, it it is it is kind of cool to see him encounter a race that he's never heard of before. Hmm. In terms of the Naimon, uh, like um, so th- that's always that's always fun because like going back to the early days as you said Hartnell going back to when we first meet the Daleks and like seeing this race you've never encountered before and seeing the, just the level of the evil that they can bring mm. about because uh, kind of spoilerish Naimons I think are kind of a fascinating villain to have um, they are and I would kind of put them up there with um and not just because of the mythology aspect, but like Sutek and stuff, in terms of the potential mm-hmm. for the species. Yeah. Um, but we'll talk more about that when we get mm-hmm. to the Naiman. Um Like, as I said, like, Saldid is the secondary antagonist of this whole story. And even then, if we don't get any of those, you know, moments that we've talked about, like, you know, like, like when Tom does... When Tom and the villain of the week or the villain of the story are back and forth with each other, mm. it can be brilliant, you know. Like we've talked about the, well, what is it? The 
the pirate captain. We've mm. obviously we talked about Davros. We've talked about Sutek. Uh, even if you want to go last week, we talked about his just cold anger towards mm. Trist, that mm. type of thing. Here we don't really have it mm. at all. So it's not bad by any stretch of the imagination. Like he doesn't do anything to, to kind of like, kind of go oh, for fuck's sake, Doctor. Um, well possibly with the exception of not making sure that Romana had gotten out of the ship before he fucking sent it back. Um, but yeah, it's just, he's, he's there. Yeah. Like one of the interesting notes I wrote about the doctor was like, Oh, so now you use the manual. (laughs) It seems to me that like, this is the, don't forget the doctor is a scientist Mm -hmm. story. So we have him tinkering with the TARDIS at the beginning. We have him figuring out, or working with Romana to figure out the fuel cell problem. We have him working with the K9 trying to fix the TARDIS again. The whole idea of him making like the hyper beam for them to walk down, extend mm-hmm. the shield, whatever. Yeah. And then we have him, you know, figuring out how the labyrinth works, as in like from space. Mm-hmm. And him in the labyrinth, again, sciencing it out. Which is good. Is it a bit too much sciencing? Maybe. Do I... Am I concerned that he didn't really have anything to do with Saldid and even with the Nymons? The Nymons didn't really give a shit about him. They were like, get the fuck out of the mm. way. Yeah. Um, Not particularly. And I'll get into that more when we talk about Romana. Mm. Um, but I will say... um. The first episode was very, this is the Doctor, do you know? Yeah. Uh, great interactions with Romana, great interactions with K9. He played off well off the co-pilot. I thought that was really well done. Mm-hmm. It's just we didn't get that after episode one. Yeah. Which is weird. Um, also, Doctor, don't eat a jelly baby. Someone else has already started eating. Yeah. Ew. Oh, yeah. No. Um, who do we blame for Romana getting trapped in the capsule and sent off to not Corinth, Cronoth? I say we blame both. She knew what he was doing. Why the fuck did she get back in the capsule? Also, mm. he knew what she was doing. Why didn't he shout out, hey, I'm about to send it back. I blame both. They're both equally stupid. Yeah. In that particular situation. No, that's, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah. Um... As for the rest of it, like, I think it was good. Nothing to complain about, except that he didn't really yeah. get a good doctor versus lead villain yeah. face-off. There's nothing bad, there's nothing like, egregious. Like, it's just like, like we've we've had better performances. Yeah. That's, that's pretty much it. Yeah. Yeah. How about we talk about our companions? So we have Romana mm-hmm. and the bestest mm-hmm. boy. Who would you like to discuss mm-hmm. first? Um... I have a few more things to say about Romana in this story, okay. so maybe the bestest boy. Okay. Um, so, leaving aside previously mentioned issues surrounding David Briarley's voice work, mm-hmm. okay, K9 is really good in this story. Mm-hmm. I like K9 in this story. Um, great banter back and forth with the Doctor. Uh, I love the, I love the fucking ticker tape, kind of like just surrounded in a pile of the readout from his mouth. There's so much funny. shit wrong with this ship. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, 
I love his bravado. You know, like put me put me on the floor. And he's like, no, show me some of your power. Just shoot some. <laughs> now put me on the floor. Um, and like he's the like he's the he's the hero in this one because he's the one that gets them out of the maze. Speaking of the maze, I love the idea when he said like it's like a giant positronic circuit because initially you think that the maze is being shifted to lure them closer in. Mm. It's it's it, no, it's just by the fun the various functions of the power complex, the tunnels shift in accordance with it, so it just sends them wherever. I thought that was kind of cool. Uh, yeah. Um, but yeah, no, K nine being like the bestest boy and the whole thing, you know. But that's not like that's a wall. There is no wall. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, like I like he had some you know, really really good interactions with the doctor here. Um, so as a, you know, as the K nine character, really enjoyed the story with him in it. Yeah, I'd agree. Um, I did feel bad when his head got twisted around and upside down. Yeah, what the fuck? Poor I blinked. Another, like, what the hell happened? Um, I loved his interactions with Sorak. Mm. I loved him guiding everyone out of the maze. The one thing I found interesting with the guiding everyone out of the, everyone out of the maze thing is the doctor says the canine can smell his way out, mm-hmm. right? Because he knows what way he fucking came in. Mm-hmm. Um, the one downside I would have of that and one thing I wish they had done differently would have been I would have liked to have seen him get lost once Mm -hmm. because the maze shifts Mm -hmm. because I wanted to see how the staff is used to navigate the fucking maze because clearly that's how Saldid gets in and out yeah that's actually a really fucking good point (laughs) So I would have liked to have seen, like, do you like at one point K9 goes down and he sort of turns around and he goes back up? Mm-hmm. I would have mm-hmm. liked to have seen, like, you know, oh, you know, scanners indicate this is the correct way to go, but I did not come this way. So I don't know mm-hmm. whether to go left or right. Um, And that, you know, they use the thing and then once he's back on the main track, then he's fine. He's good. And then he has the whole issue with the whole thing with the wall, which I thought was brilliant. Um, yeah. But that's just something that I think they wrote it too easily to have K9 do it when I'm like, mm. I had a question. <laughs> I had a question. Because we find out from Suzanne, Suzanne mm-hmm. that it's the Nymons that gave the staff. Mm-hmm. So clearly it's meant to be used yeah. to navigate the thing. So that's just like, and it's, a, it's not a K9 nitpick, it's a story writing nitpick. Um, yeah. But overall, I thought, you know, K9 was really good. Um, and like I said, his whole thing with Sorak I thought was very funny. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, because it also yeah. highlights the fact that, like, you know, they sort of get around the fact that we never see K9 leave the TARDIS. Mm-hmm. They cut away and he's on the floor. The step is never discussed. Yeah. But here it's like, no, 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 no. I physically can't get off the table. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. But he doesn't let it hold him back. He's just like, put me on the floor. Yeah. Put me on the floor. I only stung you. Put me on the floor. Mm. <laughs> Which I just think is funny. Because like it's sort of like the R2-D2 thing. Where like, mm. you know, in the prequel trilogy, we find out that this whole time, yeah. R2 has had thrusters. Which is how he gets up and down stairs. <laughs> and I love that they oh. never gave K9 thrusters. He literally just goes on flat. Yeah. And that's it. And if he ever does go up and down stairs, no one knows. How he does it. It's like cool. Mm. Brilliant. 
your thoughts on Romana this time around? So, first of all, cracking fucking outfit. Mm. Apparently, Lala Ward had great input into the outfit, including wanting the jacket to be red because of um, bulls and... Mm. No, it, it's very much it's very much like um, Lady of the Manor goes out for a horse ride. That's mm-hmm. what it, that's the the style. Um, so styling choices, well, bravo for the style. But Jesus Christ, woman, pick a fucking point and stick with it for the love of God. I, was like, I can tell you what happened, but first, where's the man you know nothing about? Because <laughs> that's the thing. Like she arrives when she arrives on Skanos. I know I'm jumping like mm. a bit into the story here, but she arrives in Skanas, and like your man asks, "What's going on here?" And she goes, "I can tell you." And I was like, "And then it's like, it's a case of like, where, like you, know, I told you, I'm Romana. Where's the doctor?" It's like, how the fuck would they know who he is?" <laughs> and then it's like, "I'm from Gallifrey. That means anything to you?" And it's like, "You're you're you're all over the place with this fucking thing." Just like, just say what happened. Pick a fucking lady, lady. Yeah, that's it. Just like pick a fucking point and stick with it for the love of God. Um, I I talked about it last week where Lala seems to be more confident in her own now, and that confidence is continuing here. Uh, which is like it's great to see her. It feels more natural in the role now, um, like and she has some really good good parts of it here. Like I love the whole thing with her sonic screwdriver. Like the doctors are going, yeah, yeah, it's kind of basic, and then he gives her his one, but she's like, ah, give me back my one, please. I don't need this old archaic piece of whatever. Um, I did like her sending up to the co-pilot and demanding, like really angrily, like mm. you have to turn back for the doctor. I really like that. Uh, but where I think she shines is her interactions with the supporting characters, mm. specifically, um, I would say specifically Seth and uh, Cezanne. Mm. Uh, because, like, she acts more like a a confession booth for Seth for mm. his own fucking bullshit, or not, bull, not his own bullshit, but like for his own issues. And then with... Um, uh, Shazam the fucking the guy Mm. uh, she's a beacon like inadvertently she's a beacon of hope for or a beacon of redemption for him Mm. because his whole his thing is like that and and she doesn't hold what he what happened on Krenat against him which Mm. I think is good for him because you're not the only one that fell for this trick Mm. and like it's it's really good because I feel like the earlier story Romana or the earlier versions of Romana like or mm. start of the season Romana would have probably said, oh, well, like, like, why, like, why didn't you ask questions or like would have kind of held it against him. Mm. Whereas here, like it's, it wasn't your fault. Mm. So I, I, I liked that regards. But then there's stuff to kind of like, as you said, he's going, he he says he's figured out what to do. Why would you get back into the ship? Why would you leave your sonic screwdriver on the bridge with the fucking giant space racist? Um, Why do you incoherently fucking babble questions to people about stuff that they don't know? Um, 
it's it's a mixed bag. It's a better mixed bag than we've had previously, but it's still a mixed bag. Mm. This is actually my favorite Lala Ward performance. Mm. And people probably know what I'm going to say. Because it was the most like Mary Tan. This was Romana 1. This this was Romana 1. Like the vast majority of this. The way she carried herself. The way she spoke to everybody. The way she spoke to Seth and Sesam. And the way she like went hell for leather against the co-pilot and Soldied. I'm just like, hello Romana 1. I have fucking missed you. I'm glad your personality has reasserted itself. So, I'm going to ask you a question now, right? Mm. Is this a case of, A, what we would normally hope is the core tenets of the character, the true line through the, the regenerations, like minus the personality quirks, is, is that this case? Or is it what we were talking about before with the weird fuckingness of the regeneration in the sense of because she voluntarily chose it has she just changed her face but she's still meant to be Mary Tam I don't think it's either of those things to be honest I don't right. think they put enough thought into it to be either of those things Okay, they didn't treat her regeneration like a doctor regeneration so I don't think production wise it's either of those Okay, I think canonically I could definitely see it being the second of those things. That, that like, it's she. She just literally changed her face, but it's still yeah, it's still Romana Romana one inside. Mm-hmm. She tried out a few different things with her personality and whatever, and she reverted back to, you know, smart ass fucking, you know, caring for the people. Like everything that she learned here is Romana, because I don't see the previous stories this season leading to this Romana. Yeah. Do you know, like, I don't see the character development there, whereas we did see the character development last season with Romana 1. Now, what I also think it could be is that this is the only story written by this particular writer. And I'm wondering if he wrote his story based off having watched the previous season. (laughs) Quite possibly. Do you know? um, What I will say is that, like, like, for me, this was Lala at her most Romana one. The way she carried herself, her tone of voice. There was none of the little girl fucking weirdness that she'd been doing mm. with some of the previous stories. And when she's not being Romana one-esque, it feels weird. <laughs> for example, when she says, like, oh, we could, like, use the thingy for the engines or whatever. And the doctor's like, that's a good idea. I wish I would have mm. thought of that. And she's like, you would have thought of it eventually. But it's not playful ribbing of she would have thought of eventually a fucking dumbass. It's like, no, you would have, because you're amazing. I'm like, okay, that bit was weird. Mm. <laughs> um, I love that she made her own Sonic. It's fabulous. Dumb of her to leave it behind the bridge. What I found interesting in this story, and this is why I wonder, particularly as someone who has struggled with this iteration of Romana, this is why I actually don't mind the Doctor wasn't as present. It's mm-hmm. because we got to see Romana take the lead. Yeah. Which I yeah. actually really enjoyed. So it's interesting to see her being separated from the Doctor for so long and forced to drive plot. Mm-hmm. Um, I love how protective she is of the Athenians. Fuck them. Um, mm-hmm. I love how she doesn't out Seth either. Do you know? Yeah. But she still defers to him. She talks to him. She doesn't talk to anybody else. 
I'll come back to that because he is the de facto leader of this little group. Mm-hmm. I love the way she is with the co-pilot, like, like not giving any shits or whatever to what he has to say, just whatever. Her relationship with Sezam is lovely because, again, it shows her humanity. And I think particularly if you compare it to something like um, City of Death, Mm-hmm. where you're like where the fuck is her humanity in City of Death she's just completely fucking off the rails different do you know what I mean I think that's lovely yeah. but the best for me is when she takes Saldi to part I fucking loved it mm. how many nine months did you see how many nine months oh yeah. shit it was brilliant the delivery was great the lines were great whatever that for me made up for you know, all of the like random shit that she did, you know, the getting stuck in the mm. fucking egg meant that she had to have the great relationship with Sezon. The stupid stuff with Saldid at the beginning of like, you know, where is the doctor? Who is the doctor? Why is the doctor? Like, that whole thing. Mm-hmm. I'm like, the way she takes him apart at the end, I mm-hmm. fucking loved it. I thought it was brilliant. I said, the way she tries to like, when they is it when they meet the Naiman, so her and the tributes, um, mm-hmm. which a half those tri- the majority of those tributes are just cannon fodder because they're thick as bricks. When she says "follow yeah. me" and mm-hmm. they all just stand there, um, yeah, I love how the Naiman enters the room and she immediately arms full out, blocking the rest of them. Mm. She stands in front trying to protect seven other people and like Lala Ward is small. Mm-hmm. Now granted those mm-hmm. seven other people were also small but like she immediately arms out full on focus on me not on them. I thought it was very very good mm-hmm. and for me the fact that we didn't get to see the doctor do that I'm like I love the fact that we got to see Romana do it. Mm-hmm. I thought it was great. Um I will say a comment on the tributes. So the tributes had an interesting dynamic. A, there was an uneven number of them, which bothers me. Because it's meant mm. to be an equal and even number of tributes. Weird. Um, and also, there's more women than men. Mm. If there was more men than women, I'd kind of understand it, because you could say the set was extra. But there's more women than men. Whatever. That's just the Greek metaphor. But... <laughs> So you had Tekka or Tika, who got brown hair. Mm-hmm. You had a girl with red hair. You had a girl mm-hmm. with black hair. And you had a girl with like dirty blonde hair. Mm-hmm. Which I found quite interesting that they just sort of seemed to be like one of every hair colour. The girl with the dirty blonde hair. So her hair was a bit longer than everyone else's. Mm-hmm. There's a scene where I think it's Seth and Romana are talking, or else it's Romana and Tekka are talking, it's one of them. And your one is stood in the background in between the two of them. <laughs> and her facial reactions are fucking hilarious. Because <laughs> she's clearly watching the conversation. Mm. And like, she doesn't know if she should be reacting or not. I'm like, someone needed to give that poor girl a bit of direction. because like, <laughs> I, co- I couldn't get over it. it like, I literally was like, oh my God. Like, 
awkward as fuck. <laughs> that's one of the things where you feel awkward by association. Yeah. But usually though, that happens when someone in a show says something awkward. No, this mm. is just her standing there completely unresponsive watching this back and forth between these two other people and I'm like why is she center frame? <laughs> I have to say I didn't notice that. <laughs> go back and watch it. It's very funny. Um, but yeah, I think this is the first full-on positive thing I've had to say about Romana all season. Outside of her silliness. Hmm? Outside of her silliness at points. Yeah, but you know, overall, I would consider this to be a positive. Yeah. So potentially something for the for the the fucking best of. Mm. I says fucking something on the list. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's cruel. That's cruel of me. Anyway, on mm. to our prominent characters. Yes. So we've Seth and Tekka, Sezam, mm-hmm. and then Sorak. Mm-hmm. So do you want to go by their in-story names? Or do you want to guess the mythological character? <laughs> um, I w- This is how I would do it. Mm. I would do Tekka, Sorak, Sezam, and then Set. Okay. So what do you think of Tekka? Jeez, she's a bit of a fucking pill, isn't she? <laughs> Like, uh, like, okay, like, clearly, like, you could put you could put it down to maybe like nerves or whatever, in the sense that she's blinded to the truth of the realities around her because like she's nervous as hell over the fact that holy shit, I'm I'm a tribute or none of the other tributes have fucking ever returned from the place. It's like. But clearly, like, you know, Seth isn't the great hero you're expecting him to be. Like, he's, like, Jesus, the guy's in a cold sweat half the fucking story. And it's obvious as hell, like, that he's not, um, it's like, please just don't don't, don't look over here. Don't look over here. Please don't look over here. I just mind my own business. But she's like, no, no, here he is. The great one. The one that'll kick your fucking ass. He's like, oh. it's, it's like on a night out like it's like a drunk girlfriend who picks a fight with someone and then expects the boyfriend to back her up um, so I, I think like, but like she seems to be more ide- devoted to the idea of Seth mm. than Seth himself yeah and yeah as a, that, that's pretty much it where it's just like oh for fuck's sake <laughs> like I can imagine like you know when, when, in the, like, when they got separated in the tunnels and he'd be like Tekka, Tekka, oh dear, she's lost. I better go back to the doctor. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You honest fool, that was your chance. Yeah, like, I was watching it and, uh, you know, again, I was playing the game of, which character is this? Mm. And I was like, is she meant to be Ariadne? Or Phaedra? Hippolyta? Is she meant to be Helen? (laughs) Like... Who is this woman meant to be? She's not meant to be anybody. She's completely made up for the story. Um, yeah, I, she doesn't. Ha- she's not analogous to any of those four people. Who? Why did I name those four? Ariadne is who helped Theseus 
es- mm-hmm. escaped the Minotaur. Phaedra, Ariadne's sister, later goes on to marry Theseus. Hippolyta, mm-hmm. leader of the Amazons, has a ship, has a ship, has a kid with Theseus. And then Helen of Sparta, aka Helen of Troy, who mm-hmm. Theseus kidnaps when she's like eight years old. So, yeah, I was like, which one of these is she meant to be? She's none of them. It's irrelevant. Um, she's fucking paying the hole. <laughs> She's this person where, like, he's trying to be like, I'll see what I can do. I'll do what I can. And you get that he will try. Like, you're getting the sense that, like, you know, whatever. And I'm like, will you shut the hell up? Oh, you'll protect me, won't you, Seth? And she, you can imagine he's like, uh-huh. <laughs> like, how long has she known him? <laughs> see, this, but like, did they just meet Seth... on the ship? Like, <laughs> long have they known this... each other? But this is the thing now about Seth, right? That it'll be it's gonna be interesting when we get to his story mm. or when he when we get to discussion around him. Because depending on the way Seth was meant to be written versus the way he is written mm. will inf- will inform that uh will answer that question, I think. Yeah, because you sort of get the sense that Tech has known Seth all his life. Do you know? Like she's a childhood friend and that's where they have this great whatever. And I'm like, no. You're a fangirl that sat next to him on the ship, aren't you? Yeah. And now you're going to be a royal pain in the hole (laughs) for the rest of his life. Christ almighty. God God help him if he fucking marries her. Yeah. I was like, okay. Oh. Uh. Whatever. Hippolyta, hey, is that the hey, same Hippolyta? Maybe he does an Ariadne with her and dumps her on the first planet he stops by on his way home. Possibly. Uh, Hippolyta, is that the same one that, you know, had the magic belt that Hercules was meant to get as part of one of his labours? His war belt, her war belt, yeah. Yeah, okay, so it's the same one. Okay, fair yeah. uh, And their son is Hippolytus, who mm. Phaedra fell in love with. Tried to get together with. He said no. She killed herself. Theseus nearly killed him. Yeah, that's a big. Thing. Jesus, they say fucking. They say Ireland is a small country. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, Theseus. We're not talking about. So now then, there is Sarek, mm. and Sarek is an interesting one because I had initially put him down, I had him initially put down as a villain because of, mainly because of the last thing that's ever mentioned about him, mm. which is Romana asks, oh, what will Scanus be like now with him in charge? And the doctor says, pretty much the fucking same. And which is an interesting one because generally in these types of stories, when you've got like the power mad dictator, You've got someone that is like that. That is is also the kind of the, the complete opposite because Saldine is the only scientist there, mm. and Sark is the head of the military. So, like you think like that, especially with like a militaristic society like uh, Skanas, that like he'd be either trying to continually usurp the power, or he wouldn't. Like, have we learned nothing from the Civil War? Mm. Have we learned whatever? Like, um, and no, he's just pretty much like 
he likes the status quo and the society of Scotland, so he's going to keep it going. Mm. Um, his, I feel like you could actually kind of like Diamond last week. He's a bit superfluous. The only thing he really does is put Canine on a floor. <laughs> I was wondering when I was watching this last night. I was like, Sork is going to do something. Sork is going to do something. Why the fuck did Paddy put him on the list? Sork is going to do something. The one thing I will say is I think the Doctor does Sork a disservice. The Doctor knows nothing about him. Like, literally nothing. Um, because Sork comes across as one of the most normal people on that fucking planet. He's a realist. He doesn't buy into the hoodoo voodoo of Naiman. He challenges Saldid when Saldid's like, oh, the Naiman spoke of the journey of life or whatever the hell it is. And he's like, what, again? Like, whatever. Like, he takes an interest in K9. Yeah, he's like, you K9 can bring power, but like, that's more a case of like, you know, powers, weaponry, or whatever. But like, he is the most normal fucking person we meet <laughs> from that planet. Like, and I'm there kind of going point. like, you know, given the fact that he didn't buy into the whole Naiman stuff, and he clearly was like getting ready to call Saldid on his fucking bullshit. I think to say that like their planet will continue the same way it was is a bit of a disservice. Like, will they continue to be militaristic? Yes. But in the same way, no, I don't think so. I don't think Sark is that like, stupid. I don't think he was trying to call Saldid on his bullshit. Like, because he raised the point of like, why is Naiman helping us? And then mm. when Saldid's whole thing was like, wait, actually, I'm the one taking him for the ride as opposed to the other way around. He's like, oh, oh yeah, yeah, cool. So well, yeah, like, but like, he, he's clued in enough though to ask the question. Oh, well, yeah. Do you know what I mean? No, granted that, yeah. Um, but like, I still think he's, like, to me, I didn't see any evidence of, like, well, I think my way is better. No, but I think he was much more of a realist. And I think without Saldid being all fucking hoodoo voodoo and making mm. technology kind of hoodoo voodoo as well, which I think was a part of the problem of this mm. society, I think they'll continue to be militaristic, but... In a different way. Do you know? And weirdly, in a better way, if that makes any sense. Do you know that it will be based on them and their strength and their abilities and not on playing on the past? Because like, the whole idea is that like they haven't had a new ship in a hundred years. <laughs> but the only way they're able to get the tributes is because the... Athenians are still afraid of the past. They're afraid of a legend, essentially. Like. Yeah. And I kind of get the sense that Sorok is like, okay, all of our ships are gone. Let's fucking figure out what we're good at and figure this shit out from scratch because your man fucking let us down a fucking whatever when we could have been developing technology for ourselves. Instead, we were just reusing the old stuff that none of us even understand how it works anymore. Mm. Do you know? So I I don't know. I kind of feel that the doctor did him a slight disservice in the sense of like implying that they'd continue to do it in the exact same way. 
and like he's yeah, I suppose that's fair because he's not also like he's he's not a complete you know blockhead because no. he manages to reactivate K nine mm. even though he has no idea how K nine operates. So it's like he tinkers. So yeah, mm. like no. If as you said, like you know, we will rebuild our society, and with his tinkering, or like like with his mindset for it, who knows where where that will eventually lead to? Will they just become this militaristic planet, but not a an expansive militaristic planet, or will they be more isolationist, kind of like the Amazons? Yeah, I think I think why I found it so interesting though, because I was trying to play the who is he (laughs) game. And based on his name, the natural conclusion is that he's Icarus. Do you okay. know? Um, particularly because like at the beginning I wasn't sure if Solid was meant to be Minos or if Solid was meant to be Daedalus. Um but like if he's Icarus, then maybe the planet is doomed to repeat its former mistakes. Because he can either go too much in one direction or too much mm-hmm. in the other direction. But he has the potential to fly the course, but he may choose to go too into expansionism or too into isolationism and then for destroy them. But that was probably me reading way too much into it because I was trying to identify who each person was. I'm, I'm amazed you didn't come up with like a sort of a, sh- a ship of Theseus type thing with the fact he said like it's an old ship, but it seems to be having a lot of newer equipment put into it. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it's because it's not their ship. It's not the Athenian yeah. ship, so I didn't, I didn't yeah. go for that. Um, but yeah. Um, I did spend ages going, though. His name is Sorg. And this this is the other reason why I think he's Icarus. Mm-hmm. He wears feathers. Ah, yes. His feathered headdress. Mm-hmm. Mm. And I was like, ooh, is that meant to be like an Icarus nod? Maybe? It's kind of like when you watch. It's kind of like when you watch like the 2003 series of Battlestar Galactica for the first time. Lords of Cobalt, you know, like, mm. like oh, they're they're Greek gods and they all this type of shit. Yeah. Uh. And next we have Sesam, 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 Moses. He 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 who remain he who remains. <laughs> um. Really tapping into the future here, but he kind of reminded me a bit of your man Ko Sharmus from Jodie's era. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, like the last survivor remorseful for the, having played the part in the downfall of his society and risking everything for the redemption. Also, also, slight reminiscence of the Guardian from the Takan Empire in uh, first season of TNG. Mm. Yeah. yeah. But I think, I think that's more so like aesthetically mm. uh, as opposed to like the thematic one of Coach mm. Armas. Um I like this. And that's the reason why I wanted to discuss him so close to the top of the prominent character tiers, because like it's a it's a short but it's a sweet appearance. Um because again, his placement of the story helps sets the stakes for just how bad an invasion of the Naimon is. Mm. And it helps us connect more to the prominent characters in the story. It's a launching pad for the more emotional connection to Romana. Or, mm. sorry, for Romana to have that more kind of Androids of Tara type sympathy and empathy that she mm. has for the, the place of the the weak and innocent or, the, you know, mm. the destitute. Um, 
so like I really enjoyed what he represented for the story, you know? Mm. And kind of like, again, you know, if we talked, go back to another character that only had a really limited appearance, but we felt actually had a huge impact on the overall scope of the story, the Huntsman from The Creature from the Pit. Mm. It's what they represent for everything within the story. So, yeah, I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed his interactions with Romana. He had a great last stand. Like, you know, mm. go on, you know, I'll hold them off for you. But I'm a sucker for a last stand. I fucking love it. Um, and, like, for for a role that could have very easily, because it's, what, a total six minutes of screen time, maybe? Yeah, again, I was wondering. I was like, Paddy has one more person on the list and I haven't seen him yet. Yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> Like six minutes of screen time, mm. but what an impact those six minutes make on the on the story. Mm. I'd agree. Like for me, he's my favorite story based character. The story, mm. yeah. Um, again, very much reminiscent of that character from Jodie's era. Mm-hmm. And again, I'm watching it, and I've been watching it for three episodes, trying to name who's who. I'm like, oh, he's Daedalus. Hi, Daedalus. Mm-hmm. That's going because he also wears feathers. Yes, that's true. He's got like a kind of a feathered turban type thing going. Yeah, um, because originally, like I said, I thought Salty was meant to be Daedalus. Welcome back to him in a second. Mm-hmm. Um, but I love like the reason why I think Sezamans actually makes a great Daedalus is because he feels remorse for what he's done. Mm-hmm. He built this thing as a sort of you know way to heighten his own name, his own position, his own Mm -hmm. whatever. And he had to watch as it was not necessarily bastardized, but like sort of like the whole idea of, you know, the guy who invented the atomic bomb, right? Yeah. And the fact that he's one of the few or one of the only survivors left and he has to, and he's watching them go do it to somebody else. Mm-hmm. And he feels remorse for what he brought in his people, and he feels pity. Like even though, like the Scanlans, like I mean, Saldid and them, like we don't feel a whole lot of pity for them, for the most no. part. No. But he, but he does because he's mm. like no one deserves what I brought on my planet. Mm-hmm. Do you know? And again, it's very much reminiscent of Daedalus because, like Daedalus built the labyrinth, he built the prison for the Minotaur. But he felt like he eventually became a prisoner himself. Mm-hmm. Do you know? And he didn't like what Minos was doing with the Minotaur. He didn't like the fact that they were taking tributes from Athens and whatever. And in some tellings of the story, he's the one who told Ariadne how to get out. Mm-hmm. Like he gave Ariadne the idea of using the string and, and whatever. So mm-hmm. I think for me, like, even though his name doesn't have any connection with Daedalus, I think like he is meant to be. The Daedalus of the yeah, story. Yeah, no, no I'd, I'd, I'd agree. I'd, I definitely agree with that analogy. Yeah. Um, and he's part of the reason why I was like, oh, is Sork meant to be Icarus because of the feathers thing? Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, like, he is my favorite story-based character yeah. of this story. Um, Because the other thing is the guy who plays him mm-hmm. plays it so well. Mm-hmm. I'll talk more when we get to Salty, but your man went like, oh, very um, panto. Uh, 
I, I, I was going to save this line for Saldeed, mm. but I've seen less ham on a fucking pig on the spit. Yeah, whereas I think, you know, here we have someone who's actually, like, John Bailey plays the character with subtlety and nuance and, like, the fact that you said, like, he's only in one episode for maybe six ep- six minutes all in and you're not even on screen for that entire six minutes. Mm-hmm. The fact that you care that he died mm-hmm. and you feel bad because all you're thinking in your head is the pod takes two. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The pod takes two and he doesn't get to go. And I'm like, and I, I think, I think it's, it's one of those things of like, you know, it was never about all of us getting out. Mm. But also we see like the difference between him and Solid, which is he was given the same staff that mm-hmm. Solid was. But Romana's like, sure, they didn't give you something that could hurt them. And he's like, they didn't. He modified it. He's very intelligent, mm-hmm. you know, and we see that that intelligence isn't hidden away by fucking hoodoo voodoo or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, he's just a very intelligent person. I did love as well the, oh, what, what do they call it? The black gem thing jason ice jason ice i was like is that meant to be jason yeah. the Argonaut? Is, that, is that what that was meant to be a play on i got lost in a greek thing um mm. but yeah so i thought sesame was brilliant i loved him i thought he was great yeah and him great and Romana are adorable as hell hmm. and as you said like john b like we, like we saw him as um, victoria's dad in mm. even the daleks and like we talked about, like, we've talked previously before about, especially with the lost stories, mm. it's very hard. It, it can be very hard to engage with them. Mm. But when you've got a really good performer, they mm. draw you in. Yeah. And John John Bailey proved that what he was able to do in seven episodes, he could do it in six minutes. Mm. Yeah, completely agree. And then we have the boy. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't want fortune and glory. I mean, the fortune's um, um, nice and stuff, but like... <laughs> almost, almost Willie Scott-esque, you know, you know, but I don't want your stupid fortune and glory. Um, interesting take. And I feel sorry for him. Like, I do. Because he seems to be running from one shitty life to another. And this is where I... All right. I'm a bit confused. Because... It's if I'm taking this incorrectly, then it's on me. But if I'm reading it, if I'm if I took it correctly, then the guy who wrote this script really needs to his last name the fucking script, um, because he says that he ran away from home, f- was found by the king, told a story, and the king liked it, and was kept on. I then you raise the point of you go, oh, has she known said all his life? He's meant to, apparently meant to be the crown prince of Aneth. So this like, is this is the thing, right? So <laughs> this is the Theseus story now coming back again. Huh. Right. So in the Theseus myth, Aegeus stopped at wherever Theseus is from, I've forgotten. I'm assuming it's it might be Corinth, I can't remember. Hmm. Um uh after meeting with an oracle because he didn't have an heir. And the oracle told him something like, don't unstopper your wineskin or something until you get home. Um, 
basic meaning don't fuck um he ended up having a night with theseus's mother and the way it goes that he left his sandals behind under a rock Mm. and if she was to have a boy when he was old enough to move the boulder he would get the shoes and then he would go to athens to take his place as heir the way they sort of presented here is that he turned up after stumbling through like again when theseus goes to athens his grandfather and his mother says like oh i'll send you off in a boat with all of these jewels and whatever and he's like no no no, i want to make my own way and so he walks through like the treacherous way to get there and it's where we have the body stretcher and the guy with the two pine trees mm-hmm. and whatever mm-hmm. and he defeats all of them right and then he gets to athens he's like hey i've done all these things and basically he has his own set of labors and whatever i'm abridging it massively but ultimately at one point medea from jason's medea who's now married mm-hmm. to Aegeus, tries to poison him because she doesn't want him involved and he says something about his shoes. Someone asked, why do you wear such ratty shoes? And he says, oh, they were my father's. They were buried under a boulder. Mm-hmm. And I'm, and that's when Aegeus realizes, oh my God, he's my son. And he, you know, banishes Medea and takes pieces on as his son. All of that to say, that's a really bad abridged version of Theseus <laughs> with... All of that to say, what I think happened here is he stumbled his way from wherever the fuck he's from. I think it's from Corinth. He stumbled his way to Athens, somehow managing to defeat all these people by accident on the fucking way, but building this mythology for himself as he went. And then he meets the king and someone asks the question and he tells a story that he just fucking made up to explain away something. So maybe it's to explain away his shoes or maybe it's to explain something more futuristic. And it's the same story the king is expecting to hear from his heir. And he's like, oh my God, it's my son returned. And your man's just like, what? And he just gets caught up in the whole thing. Do you know? So like, that's, that's like, my... So he's not... He, like, he says it. He's like, I'm not actually the prince. It's just, I told listen, a story and he believed it. But, like, but this is the thing, right? This is you coming to this conclusion because you know that this is based on Greek myth and you were big yeah. into Greek myth, right? The scriptwriter can't like really account for everyone to be able to get that. So it just seems like this whole thing of I ran away from home, I told a lie, the king believed it, and now I'm a prince. And everyone's like, he's the like he's the crown prince of the whole place. And it's like, okay, then no, we don't know like we we don't know not we know nothing about Anna's society, hmm. right? So we don't know how big into the royal families there are. And it's like, oh bunch of fucking you know vacuous pricks we never see them anyway so we don't know what he's what he looks like but i the reason i say he went from one shitty life into another one is because if it's like he told this big this big elaborate story the king is like i could use you and i am going to use you you're going to fucking sever this Mm. shit we have with skonos so he's just being used again so I really feel sorry for the poor fucker. Yeah, it's one of those things where, like, the episode started. I was like, okay. Then we meet a guy called Seth. I was like, okay. 
and then it was denying my uh, and within five minutes I was like oh okay I know what I know what this is now Ooh. first thing I wrote down please don't be like Theseus please don't be like Theseus <laughs> Um, I meant in the whole way he treats women, right? I don't usually get up on my feminist high horse, but like, I've read a lot of retellings of Greek myths from the female perspective. Mm-hmm. Theseus is perhaps like the worst. He is the worst. If you're ever interested in the story of Theseus from another perspective, the book Ariadne by Jennifer Saint is amazing. And also, anything by Natalie Haynes. Um, her podcast is also very good. It's fantastic. Mm-hmm. But anyway, really is. but I was there going like, please don't be like Theseus. Like, don't like, don't let Tekka behind or 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 do whatever the Theseus did. And then I was like, I, I found it really interesting the way they told the Theseus story, which is that, like I said, all of his great labors were things he just stumbled into. <laughs> I'm not sure if that makes him better or worse than Theseus from the myth. Because the the way the myth runs by itself, by the time Theseus gets to Crete and the Minotaur, he seems like a really good guy. Mm. Do you know? And so in that case, the fact that Seth is continuing to perpetuate this lie and hasn't come out and told everyone it's a lie kind of makes him worse but he also looks like a lost puppy mm. and he's not as evil later as real Theseus. so i'm like is he better is he worse um i do feel bad for him though because he has tech a fucking egg in him on the whole fucking time mm-hmm. he's like oh why don't you fight him and he's like have you fucking seen it like did you see the person who was like a dried husk that when you touched him, he went from like, mm. <laughs> he's there going around with the worst cheerleader ever. Oh my God. It's brave Sir Robin. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> um, where I feel good about Seth though, is that even though he's lying and he's manipulating by omission, his heart is in the right place. Mm. Like he did still go on this mission. Yeah. And he does still try to help where he can. Like he's asking the doctor and Romana constantly, what are we doing? Like he he wants to help. He just doesn't know what he can do. Which again, makes him better than the thesis of myth. Um, yeah. What I do find interesting though, in a very sort of Greek hero way, is how he takes down the nine months. Which is with the staff. Mm-hmm. But with the staff, with the gem given to him by Romana. Mm-hmm. And if you look at a lot of Greek myths, Hercules probably being the one exception. Like, we think of Perseus, right? So Perseus versus Medusa mm-hmm. was done with gifts from the gods. Mm-hmm. They can't do what they do without gifts from the gods. And that was actually the one place where Theseus was different because Theseus was 100% mortal. Mm-hmm. So I do find it interesting that it still takes a gift from a higher whatever mm-hmm. for him to be able to do the hero thing because that's the way it would have been in myth that like Athena or someone gifted someone with a something like a golden bridle or 
you know, a shield or whatever. Um, so I did find it funny that that was still in there. But yeah, I really was getting my Greek yeah. nerdy on last night. <laughs> I would also Here. like to say, right, because there are going to be people listening to this who's like, she is bastardizing the entirety of Greek myth. I have not studied Greek myth at university level. I didn't study Greek myth at secondary level. I just have an interest in Greek retellings and the works of Stephen Fry, Jennifer Saint, um, Natalie Haynes, Natalie Haynes, and Rick Madeline Miller, and Rick Riordan. So, like, that's where my love yeah. comes from. Um, so, if I have gotten anything wrong, it's because I'm not an expert. I'm just a novice in this area. Uh, because you mentioned Perseus and the gift from the gods here is a shield that can def- deflect any weapon and a sword that can cut you any armor. Don't get it too close to the shield. I don't know which one speeds which. <laughs> oh. Oh. So, Shall we go on to our vill- villains? Yeah. Uh, so... Good luck editing this, by the way. Buddy. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, another reason why, you know, you're potentially bastardizing Greek readers like we only have so long we can keep people's attention spans for yep <laughs> and you get to decide what bits to keep in and what bits to take I out know. Look. I have to I have to laugh like you know, we used to do like four part stories in like you know less than an hour <laughs> yeah then we got <laughs> what it was I, re- I, like, I, th- I realized I could edit on like three times speed and so I didn't mind listening mm. to our voices <laughs> Like I, like I think that like, we did one four parter that was longer than our fucking two parts of like the Talix Master Plan, yeah, combined. Uh, but anyway, uh, so we have co-pilot. the copilot, Saldid, and the Naiman. I think that's the right order to do that. Yeah, yeah. cool. Copilot, ah, uh, yeah, bloody racist, elitist bully. because uh, that's all he is. He's mm. he's a he's a foot soldier in an all powerful regime. That likes taking it out on those that are deemed lesser than. Yeah. Sound like anyone? Mm. Um, and the fact that he's wearing all black as well with track boots. Um, so, like, I think to be fair to him, he's 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 quick on his feet. I'll give him that much. Uh, because like, he is, like, when once they come back and Sully asks what's going on, he was like, "Well, there's no one of." There's no one of good standing here that can refute anything I'm about to say. Mm. I bravely did this and I took great personal risk and so on and so on. But then when he tried to be clearly a lot more clever than everyone knows that he is, it's like, yeah, okay, you're full of shit. Mm. Um, Also, I feel bad for him in one sense because when he died, his pants split apart. (laughs) I didn't notice that. Yeah. Um... Like oh, another thing I think was like that the reprise for episode two and episode three was long, mm. long. It was only two minutes. Um, but yeah, as he as he falls to the floor, the arse of his pants split, so you get to see his lovely blue boxers. I didn't notice that. I'll have to do yeah. yeah, yeah, it again. Yeah, <laughs> poor fucker. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, he's just like, I think like, even. Just like the constant jabbing, like you know, like a weakling scum and all this type of shit. Like I'm amazed he didn't have a go to Romana because she was a woman. Mm. Like clearly he didn't like being back talked. Yeah. Clearly not. Um and then like yeah, he just one of those people that when he thinks he like when he has the slightest bit of power over someone, he has no problem exerting it. Mm. But then becomes like a crybaby once things don't go his way. 
and he tries to blame everyone else that you know <laughs> I don't have your money here it's in Bill's house and Fred's house <laughs> that, that type of shit um, and it's odd like because like he's in this for about two episodes like a good chunk of two episodes but I've less to say about him than I did about someone in his six minutes you know because <laughs> he, like, he's just a representative of an idea mm. you know as opposed to a fully fleshed out character yeah, like what I find so like my first word about him was prick, mm. elitist, scorn, supremacist, idiotic prick. But what I find interesting is he to me, like usually that character is meant to be the represent, like is meant to represent to us what these people are like. Mm-hmm. But none of the other scorns we meet are like him, in the no. sense that. They all call him on his bullshit. Yeah. Do you know? So this isn't a case of, like, everyone sees the people of Aneth that way. Mm-hmm. It's him in particular. Like, one of those people who loves having any level of control. Um, And, like, the fact that he, like, he clearly wants to go up the ranks. He clearly wants power and gratification for him. It's like, oh, we can get there faster. We can get there in six hours. We can get there in 12 hours. It's like, what? It's going to be, or we can get there in six, we can get there in six, we can get there in nine hours. He doesn't know what he's doing, but he's like, I want to be, I want people to like adore me and to like celebrate me, whatever. It's like, what's 12 hours? What's 12 hours? Do you know? Um, I would say that he is quick on his feet. Um, in terms of like he didn't understand what Roman and the doctor did but as soon as he got back on track he's like cool fucking leave him behind get her back in there I'm fucking I'm back in the game I'm you know I'm back on track I'll be fucking high-fiving fucking nine one like this fucking no tomorrow or whatever and he's a, he's a man for a blag like he'll go for it mm. he's like cool I can set the narrative here and he's just like rolls all of his dice, lays down all of his cards, he's like, fuck it, let's go for it. He has no clue what he's talking about. He's an absolute fucking moron. But you've he'll black it anyway. He'll he'll go for it. Like. You've never seen the Green Mile, have you? No, I've seen bits of it, but I've never seen it properly. Alright, because like no, not to the same extent of this character, because this character is a complete and utter douchebag punt. Mm. Um uh, the character of Percy Whitmore, the guard, the the young guard in there, played by the guy that was Tombs in the X uh, X Files. Oh, yeah, really creepy. Mm. Like just this narcissistic, snotty little fucking prick that gets away with stuff because he has this slight semblance of authority over the prisoners, mm. and he can't. No, slight difference is he can't be called on his bullshit because he threatens all the other guards with firing them because he's the only beloved nephew of the state governor's mm. uh, wife. So a slight difference there. But this whole thing of, like, the little king of his own fucking fiefdom type shit, you know? Mm. But clearly he's an idiot and there's others there that are smarter than him that know that he is an idiot. But mm. unfortunately, that instance, they just can't call him on it. Here, it's into, you know, fuck off into the maze. Yeah, well, well I love it, like, uh, you know, in terms of, like, him not being a full representation of these people is the pilot is very different he's doing his job he knows his plan he's following it 
And he doesn't seem to like how much the co-pilot is calling them like, you know, weakling scum and or he's mm. like, just fucking just leave them alone. Yeah. Just, they're like he still sees them as cargo. Yeah. Which isn't great. But he's like, just fucking stop. Like Yeah, just stop antagonizing them. Yeah. Um so yeah, but in fairness, I mean if you think about the impact that he has the Doctor being abandoned and nearly hit by an asteroid. Romana thrown in the maze. Mm-hmm. Like, for a guy who's incredibly incompetent, his incompetence has big ramifications. Yeah, and that's why I wanted to put him in the villain category, mm. because by his actions, he sets him forward his horrible emotions. Mm. He he nearly killed the bestest boy. He did nearly, nearly kill the bestest the, boy. Yeah. Bad if it, wasn't for, if Bad it wasn't for the fact that the doctor is a really good fast bowler. Saldid. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. Put yourself together, man. Jesus Christ. As I said, like I've, I've seen I've seen less ham in fuck on fucking pigs. Um like the whole, you know, my dreams of conquest are ruined. He just pulls the big sad face. Um like acting as acting aside, there's a slight element of Davros to him, mm. in the sense of like the scientist who has convinced the military uh, establishment to elect him leader mm. and put all their faith into him. So. Like I think there's that slight element, but that's that's where the comparisons stop, because, well, yes, he, there, there is, he is a, he clearly has some semblance of like te- of obviously scientific and technical know-how, because he's able to build certain contraptions. But the doctor points out that he's missing vital components of those things, um, and it does seem to be like the age-old story where it's like you know you send you spend so long being the smartest person in the room. You fail to see that when someone else smarter is there, taking advantage of your perception that you're the smartest person there. Mm. And that's what happens here. Like, he he has convinced himself that he's the one that's actually taking, you know, the Ny- advantage of the Nyman's, you know, uh, ego and all this type of stuff. Whereas it's the other way around. Nyman is there kind of going yeah, look, I'll just get this schmuck to believe whatever he wants and then he can bring the rest of my 49 million other buddies over. Mm. Party ponies, woohoo! <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So, um, as, I, as, as I said, like, he is... Yeah, like, when you've convinced everyone else that you're the smartest person there, you convince yourself of it as well. Mm. And it's, it's very easy for someone to take advantage of that by playing along. Yeah. Like my thing with Saldid, like the first thing is like overacting much. Mm-hmm. Like that guy was in a different story to everybody else. Like I don't know if it was meant to be like a mania the character was meant to have or whatever, but like that didn't work with any like no one else was on that level. And I'm like, dude, no. come down, like fuck it. Get off the ledge. Um and again, playing the who's who of Greek mythology, initially I was like, oh, he's clearly meant to be Daedalus because he's the scientist. Mm-hmm. He said that he built the 
complex. Or at least he's the one with access to the complex. He's the one who knows how to navigate the complex. Again, it's that staff thing. I'm convinced of it. Which makes him Daedalus. But the fact that he is so vicious with putting people in the complex, with giving people to the Naimon, also kind of makes him Minos. He's kind of like a Mm. both. He's like a bastardization of Daedalus with the cruelty of Minos. He's the darker side of Daedalus. Yeah. With the mania of Minos Mm -hmm. in many ways. Um, But the thing is that like, even though he's a total fruitcake, as evidenced when Romana completely tears him to pieces later on, he's not a total moron. Like, he knows the co-pilot's story is complete bullshit. Before the co-pilot got into how he fixed the ship, Mm -hmm. he immediately sussed something was going on before anything else happened. So he's not a total moron, but like you said, I think he's just so caught up in his own myth of himself that he went from being a lead scientist that clearly made first contact with the Naiman and whatever to being this sort of leader, priest, only scientist, really, mm-hmm. that these people have. And he became so caught up in that that he stopped, it seems to me, he stopped developing. He stopped developing new technologies. He stopped being a scientist and he became this sort of like witch doctor fucking voodoo hoodoo type thing. Um, I think he's like, I think he's an interesting character because particularly when you compare him with um, Sezam. Hmm. Right, Sezam, who's been through the same thing, and who feels great regret, whereas Saldid, like, once he realizes he's not getting his way, tries to blow the whole place up. <laughs> Do you know, like he's he's just so off the other side. Um, yeah. Was he fun to watch? Yeah. Was he clearly living a completely different story to everybody else? Also, yeah. yes. <laughs> Um, and again, no offense to the actor, but like, someone should have corrected that. Yeah, no, they really, really, really should have. Because I think to get like the real Minos and Dark Deadless feel would have been to play it cold, mm. to play it quiet. I think it would have had a bigger impact, personally. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I agree. And then lastly, we have the Naimon, or the Naimons, plural. So, if I was to take, okay, if I ignore the logistical issue of the movement, mm. the hampered movements because of the actors, right? And if I just, again, focus on what they're meant to look like, I, I, like, I like what the Naimon are meant to look like. I mm. do. Like this, clearly really uh greek inspired like and like you know actually greek inspired version of the minotaur because like they're there wearing like the gold plated um oh, like skirty type mm. fucking vest that would have been worn at the time and like the gold bracers and all this type of stuff and then just obviously the giant like there's no like it's not like a man's body it's clearly like a humanoid mm. 
body, but with the bull head coming out of it and the massive hole meant to be cloven hooves. Uh, so I, I do like the design of them. But more importantly, I love the concept of them. Mm. I mentioned it earlier, I do love them. They're like a cross between the ghouls and the aliens from Independence Day. Mm. In the sense, you know, they move from one planet to the next and they just strip it of all its resources and they move on and on and on. Whereas, obviously, the analogy to the ghoul is they come and they make themselves as gods and then they have, be it willingly or unwillingly, they have these people do their will, their bidding, and then, you know, it bleeds on to the downfall of that particular civilization. Um, I'm a bit bummed out that apparently all of them are killed off mm. because... Clearly, they're very technically adept, so like you know, they pose a threat that way. They're powerful in the sense of like you know they have energy based you know like blasts coming out of their horns and quite obviously they're physically imposing. So there's that side of things, and they're very cruel and calculating. And like you'd kind of like to see, you'd like to have seen other companions, like because obviously, like you know. Colin and Ace, mm. uh, sorry, seven, seven and Ace, and obviously we've watched the newer breed. I would have liked to have seen some of those doctors and some of those companions have a go at dealing with the Nymon. Mm. Yeah, so I'm, I'm, a, I'm actually bummed out that they're gone because I really enjoyed them. I think they were definitely one of the stronger parts of the story. Mm. So for me, like literally, as soon as I realized what it is, like okay, and another tale of the Minotaur. Will this one be any better? And what I like about this story is that the Minotaur is given agency. Because mm-hmm. again, usually the Minotaur in most stories is sort of seen as a mindless brute. Yeah. Do you know? Um, thrown into, like, the labyrinth is a prison. Mm-hmm. Do you know? And the Minotaur is thrown in there. Um, because he can't be kept up on, you know, in society it, or whatever. Isn't he like meant to be? Like, I, I, again, my memory is fucking really bad with this. Isn't he like Minus's grandson or no. so, something like? No. So, Minus and his yeah. wife. Yeah. His wife's name I have forgotten. She is a sister of Cersei. Right. She is. A granddaughter of Helios. Right. Yeah. Anyway. Um, Minos called for or won some battle or something and asked Poseidon for a prize bull to be um, given up as tribute. Yeah. Poseidon provides a bull. Mm-hmm. And Minus was like, no, I quite like this bull. I'm going to kill off a lesser bull. Mm-hmm. And the one thing we know from Greek myth, do double, not double slight the gods. So it's kind of weird the way, again, it depends on the story, version of the story you're reading. But one version is that Poseidon put a madness in Minus's wife. Mm-hmm. Causing her to be sexually attracted Amorous. to the bull. Mm-hmm. She went to Daedalus and had him mm-hmm. build her a contraption mm-hmm. that she could fuck the bull. The Minotaur is her son. 
yeah. with the bull. Yes. The reason why he's called the Minotaur is... Because he's the bull of Minus. Yeah, he is the bull of Minus. So yeah. he actually had a name, which is... Oh, what's his name? Oh, God, it's going back to my head. Um, like when he was born, his mother gave him a name. Mm. <clears throat> I'm going to look it up a second, because it's going to bother me. Okay. Um, but when he started getting too big and too powerful... And when Minos realized that people feared him mm-hmm. and they saw that Minos has this beast, Minos has this monster, it went from being this embarrassment to this thing that Minos used to threaten others. And so it went from yeah. being name to the Minotaur. Um, so if I think of things right, is Minos's wife Europa? No, different person. Damn it. Uh, she also no sorry no wait uh, fucking Zeus turned into a bull and carried yeah. her off to see we had okay there yeah. we go so da 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 da, da. <laughs> uh, that's watch Doctor Who podcast this week yeah I know uh, Asterion that was his name Asterion was his name okay and his mother is Pacify okay Pacify is a sister or cousin or something of Cersei and Pacify is a granddaughter of Helios. Pacify okay, cool, is right. also um, a witch in some tellings, like similar to Cersei mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, but yeah, so Asterion is the half-brother of Ariadne, who helps mm-hmm. defeat him in the end, and mm-hmm. Phaedra, who goes on to marry Theseus. Okay. Thank you. Some Greek mythology. <laughs> There's like there's too many bulls and there's too many fucking yeah there's a lot of bulls a lot of bulls and there's and there's too much fucking as well yeah. <laughs> uh, but anyway back to this uh, uh, but you, yeah, well, yeah so yeah, like yeah. usually yeah, going back <laughs> oh. usually the minotaur is the mindless brute at the center of the maze mm-hmm. I think the only version I've seen that gives some level of heart to it is actually the book Ariadne. Where we get to learn about Asterion from a baby. Mm-hmm. And then we sort of have this thing when Asterion is older that like he's screaming to Theseus and Theseus cuts his vocal cords. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that he was screaming, kill me. Oh, okay. um, which is devastating. But again, usually... I, I, I need to read this book. You do. It's really good. It's my favorite of the retellings. It's very, very good. Um. But usually he's just a mindless brute who is a prisoner. Whereas here, the labyrinth is his domain. He rules the labyrinth. He controls Minos or Daedalus, whichever one you want to equate Saldi to be. Which I think is it's an interesting retelling of it. Because it gives him agency mm-hmm. and it gives him power. The whole idea of Naimon being Minos, which is what the TARDIS wiki said, I don't see. I don't see that at all, other than the fact that he's the one demanding tribute. But mm. um, Minos has a personal vendetta against Athens, so it doesn't really work that way. Um, but I think as a villain, the Naimon is brilliant. I think the Naimons as a species are really good. I agree with like, the physical design of them. Love the concept. I'm sure the concept art was great. The physicality of it though like the faces are a bit too squished I would have liked to have seen more mm-hmm. whatever and 
you could tell that they're like, okay, and look. And now I can see straight in front of me. They have no fucking peripheral vision whatsoever. Um, but they're an interesting thing. To your point of, I would love to see some other Doctors and Companions up on. But, again, time travel. The fourth Doctor had never heard of them. But imagine a future mm-hmm. Doctor meeting the Nymons at an earlier point in the journey of life, or whatever they call it. Like, earlier on in their um, campaign. Mm-hmm. And not being able to stop them. Do you know? Knowing what's to come, but also knowing that, fundament- that eventually they will be defeated by him anyway. Well, by themselves, I suppose. Um, so yeah, I would still like to see them. Like I said, I would put them kind of up there with Sutek in terms of an interesting play on mythology that mm. I kind of want to see more of. Do you know, like, are, are, are the Naimans linear in the sense that, like, they all go from one planet to the next? Or have they done this on many planets? Are there branches of Naimans left? Well, see, that's what the Doctor taught, but... Mm from what uh, Cezanne told us it's an it's a mass movement from one planet to the next yeah but I wonder if they put all their eggs in one basket or for all the their egg pods a, on one planet for the sake of a repair, uh, re- recurrency I hope not I hope we get to see them again yeah because I would love to see them as well at like modern prosthetics and costuming and whatever I'd love to see what they could do with that mm-hmm. I think it'd be really good I think, I think if I'm right, there's an allusion to one in a Matt Smith story, mm. but only an allusion. Like it, it, they don't, it doesn't actually play a part in the story, and it's not Anaimon. I think it's mm. meant to be just like one of those. Oh, this is spooky wooky. Uh, give me a second. I'm gonna check because sometimes in the TARDIS wiki it mentions like appearances, mentions in other media. So let me have a scroll down. Um, production continuity. Uh, the Nyman appear again in a couple of audio comics and a book. Uh, the Minotaur is a distant cousin of Nyman, according to the, the God Complex. Yeah, yeah. So it's said that the Minotaur is a distant cousin of the Nyman. Mm. Which okay, if you say so. Um, so that that's what you're thinking of. That's the episode you're thinking of. That's that is the one, yeah. But yeah, bring back the Nymons. They were kind of cool. Mm, definitely. We're coming to the end of this very long rambly podcast. Mm-hmm. So, Paddy, jump right into it. Thoughts on the story and score out of five. Go. Okay, dokie. Not a bad story. Honestly, mm-hmm. I didn't think it was that bad of a story. Um, interesting take on The Legend of the Minotaur, which is repeated ad nauseum in this episode. <laughs> um, it had some some great moments. Um, I thought the ticker tape mummification scene, as I said, was really funny. Um Speaking of mummification, there was some really good effects and some really good mm. camera work here. Like when Tekka touches, and it's a perfectly mummified body, touches it, it just poof, crumbles mm. entirely to dust. 
Really thought that was done. Oh, very I thought well that done, was done really, really well, well done. Also, there's an amazing camera shot when Saldi captures Tekka hmm. and presents her to the Naiman. And the camera is just at a slight angle, slightly tilted, as two more Naiman come into shot. Hmm. And that was that was fucking brilliant. It was such a really good shot to establish what a group of Naiman together, the, 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 the physical threat hmm. of them together is. Um, we got to see Lala Ward's version of Mary Tam's Romana. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I know and to be fair look I'll fucking you know I'll, I'll, I will stand on this and say like this was a really good performance from Rala Ward mm. like I'll, I'll, I'll fucking call him as I see him and I'm not going to say like re- you'll put retroactive glasses like I did not like her first four stories or her first three stories she has been getting progressively better yeah. uh, and here I think has been the strongest uh, strongest story with Lala so far um really good um really good performances I think from some of our guest actors specifically I would say Seth and Sesam mm. um not everyone though because <laughs> it was just, but I think probably what we got the most from it was like our enjoyment of like the allusions to Greek myth and also the, the interesting takes that they put on it because mm. that's all it's always a really cool way of doing it a reinterpretation negative side though as i said kind of dr light and this would have been a story what i would like to have seen a bit more doctor although i will say not at the expense of what we got for romana mm. if they could find a nice balance there i, I was I'm okay with that um again there's that element of inconsistency with romana herself uh, which is a bit frustrating because like, it's like she should be past this. She mm. should be she should be past all this stuff now because whatever way you're interpreting the character, like she's more worldwide now. She should not be making mm. these mistakes. Um, and there was like Saldi. The concept of Saldi was great. The acting of Saldi was not so great, and it does kind of kill investment a small bit because. Like it goes far beyond mania. It, mm. Like it does go into overacting territory, and because like we've, like we've seen mania, we've mm. seen the, the the collapse of sanity for certain characters, and now nah, this is way too over the top. Um, so I think I'm going to give it a three out of five. Okay. Because like I was there going like, like I I it's it's not I I. Don't think it's, in my opinion, it's not less than a tree. No. But I don't know how much higher than a tree it would be. Mm. Very good. Very good. Your turn. I really enjoyed this, as you may have gathered. Um, mm-hmm. At first, I was like, oh, they're doing Theseus. And then it just became a game for me. Like, I literally started <laughs> yeah. making notes. I was like, okay, so we have Seth and Annette. And that was when I was like, hold on. Tributes. Okay, we have Athens, Theseus. The planet's called Skonos. I was like, oh, what's the name of the city in Crete? It was Knossos. Okay, cool. I was sort of making a little note to myself <laughs> of what all the matches were. <laughs> Which, maybe I should have been paying more attention to the episode, but I found it really fun. Um, to the point where maybe I was seeing a bit too much into it, like Sorak is Icarus. Maybe I was yeah. seeing too much into it. 
<laughs> but I imagine if you met Anthony Reid now, you'd be like, "Yeah, that's what I meant." <laughs> but I really enjoyed it. Um, like uh, Patty and I have talked privately, and I can't remember if I've mentioned the podcast. Maybe I have. I'm on a big sort of Greek retelling binge at the moment. Um, like I've been a Percy Jackson fan for years, but I'm really mm. going through a lot of like Greek retellings and and deep diving into Greek myth. So for me, this is really really fun. Yeah, I we we, we we've both kind of done like because mm. like we've always been interested in Greek myth, and then I got you into God of War, and then you got me into Percy Jackson. So mm. yeah, it works. I, I got you into <laughs> Natalie Haynes. Yeah, it balances. Um, yes, that's. Uh, I need to find someone else to have it. <laughs> <laughs> um. I think you got me the Stephen Fry book, or you mentioned no, it to me. You, no, no uh, I think you mentioned it first. I think I, I think I mentioned he, yeah yeah he's writing a book called Heroes and I mm. read it. Yeah. Um, in terms of the story itself, I liked the take on the myth. I loved the take on the Minotaur. I thought that was great. Um, I actually quite liked the de-heroing of Theseus because I think Theseus is a prick. <laughs> Mm. Um, so I quite like that um, I liked the Doctor in this I agree it was kind of Doctor Light but I liked all the bits that we did get he didn't do anything yeah. that rankled me mm-hmm. um, which you know let's face it the last couple of seasons he's had a couple of mm. he didn't mm. have any mm moments in this um, and I really liked Lala Wars in it he said yeah. in episode one she had a couple of bits where I'm like Okay, what the fuck are you doing? Like the comment of, you would have thought of it eventually. Let me kiss your ass more. Do you know? <laughs> like, that bothered me. Her forgetting her sonic screwdriver bothered me. Mm. Um, and like I said, her random, who is the doctor? Where is the doctor? Why is the doctor? Whatever. Other than that, though, like once you got past that bit, mm-hmm. like once you got past that scene, the rest of the story fucking dinger after dinger after dinger and like i said like for me it's romana at her most romana ish mm-hmm. taking romana as a singular character from mary tam up to now um i loved loved her going at it with solid on both occasions mm-hmm. actually i guess on one of them she was a bit fucking loopy but i loved the mm-hmm. the heart behind it yeah, and I loved her with Sesam, and I loved her protecting the tributes. I thought that was great. Um, K nine had some great moments. For me, the only negative is Saldid and the overacting, hmm. and you know a couple of things around the character of Saldid. You know, in terms of like, what did the staff do? Where did he get it? You know why you know but we have more of an exploration of like why Saldid is like the lead scientist but their science seems to have stagnated why like is it that because the Naiman promised them that he'd give it to them they didn't bother continuing to invest themselves or whatever there's that but other than that I actually really enjoyed it um so this may come as a shock but I gave it a four <laughs> um I wouldn't give it anything higher than a four Mm. But I thoroughly enjoyed myself. I was going like, it's like, if if it's a shock, it's a good shock because 
my whole thing was that like I want you to keep enjoying the show past the area that you were familiar with it. Mm. And we, we we to be fair now we've had that we had that like you know, like pretty much more or less for a fair chunk of the last couple of seasons. Mm. Because like you, you enjoyed characters, you enjoyed moments, you enjoyed this stories. Maybe not so much, but no, I'm glad to see, like that's like that's a cool kind of score. Yeah, mm. I like it. It does better higher than the androids of Tara, which I loved. Mm-hmm. But I think the androids of of Tara had more things that bothered me. Yeah, than this yeah, one did. Like, I I think you like, you really took exception to that fight scene. Mm. Yes, I did. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I did. That was not um, way too long. Um, um but. Uh, other than that, though, I mean, this is the highest I've given since Stones of Blood. Yeah, you know, it's been over that's a season so, yeah. since that's I have so given loud. a four to anything. Yeah, um, like, you I still think, haven't. Think... You still haven't given a four to anything since Stones of Blood I, either. Yeah, I haven't. <laughs> I haven't. <laughs> Jesus Christ! Wait, what did I give Tara? You get three point seven five. All right. What did you give Tara? Um, yeah, like I, th- I think another thing with this particular story was, um, like, just Andrew and Tara, your for you for you was the fight scene. For me, it was the fucking constant tinkering scenes. Mm. I was like, oh, come on, let's chop it. It's just him moving a, lo- a lever back and forth, but nothing happening. Mm. For, for fuck's sake. Um, so yeah, um, no, like I. Like, to be fair, no. Granted, they haven't been as high as some of the other stories we've had. Like, Nightmare Beaten and Horns of Nymon have really been nice hits after the last three stories that we've previously seen beforehand. Yeah, like, Nightmare Beaten wasn't a big hit for me. I put it on par with City of Death, which I wasn't a big fan of either. Um, But... (sighs) Compared to Destiny yeah. of the Daleks and Creature from the Pit. And I, I know that I rated City of Death fairly high. But again, Julian Glover will get a high score, you know. Yeah, and I mean, this is the thing as well that I think people need to consider. And like as more and more people listen to us is that when me and Paddy score a story. Well, I don't know about you, Paddy, but generally speaking, we don't look back at what we gave to previous stories until after we've said the number. Mm-hmm. I would like yeah. to usually in this last like two minutes or five minutes of the podcast, mm-hmm. I'll go into our record and see what we gave previous stories. But we score each story on its own merit, merit yeah. which is why sometimes stories I love have lower rankings than stories I was like, oh, that was okay. Because it's just mm-hmm. the given story, yeah. the given mood in the given moment. I think I think a great example of that was Pyramids mm-hmm. because we both love Pyramids. Mm. But upon if you when we were watching it for the course of this, you did not like the doctor at at points. No, and like for a story to get a five, if the doctor is to have a flaw, he's also meant to have like a like a a redemption that can overshadow that flaw. Mm. Whereas, as you said, that time the flaw for you was it was a bit too insurmountable, yeah. um, which is completely understandable, but. Yeah, what was the what was the last thing you gave a five to something? The last thing I gave five was Pirate Planet, which again is weird. I scored Pirate Planet higher than Stones of Blood, mm-hmm. but at the time but, I thoroughly fucking enjoyed Pirate Planet. It was a great laugh. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah. And, and Stones of Blood, I had major issue. Yeah. Major issue. And that's the other thing as well, because like, so we don't go back and retroactively change our scores either, mm-hmm. because like, we firmly believe that it was, it is what it is. Yeah. But another thing that we always also firmly believe is that we, like, our word on, or our opinion isn't gospel on something. So, as always, we invite you to send in your opinions about the Horns of Nyman. Yeah. And, and Trisha's bastardization of Greek history, or Greek mythology. Yes, absolutely. Um, and if so you're looking, nice. and if you're looking for some Greek myth in your life, Stephen Fry, Rick Riordan, mm-hmm. Natalie Haynes, Madeline Miller, and Jennifer Saint. Yep, I recommend all of them. But I, I, I co-sponsor, I co-sponsor that statement. <laughs> <laughs> But for now, we will bid you adieu, and we will see you next week when we discuss Shada. Mm. Bye. Bye.